Ah, episode 242, Hot Shot Scott at the house in Issaquah. Me in Florida with my, I can't say it. Is it not right? It's not Issaquah. I mean, live in, I've been living in Soquamie for 20 years, and yet you still say Sorry, Issaquah. Sorry, but you're reason. from Issaquah. Yes, and my daughter does play for Issaquah, which right. I see the confusion. So yes, there's confusion. There's confusion. Try to make it stick. Yeah. I mean, when you're a legendary number 43 in Issaquah football oh. history, it's not oh, yeah. easy to shed the image. So I just, what am I wearing right now? What does it say? Yeah, you are wearing an Issaquah shirt. <laughs> I'm wearing and an Issaquah shirt here in Florida. And yeah. I'll have you know, the last time I was here, this is a true story. The last time I was in Florida with my mother, I went down to the pool and somebody in her complex that was swimming in the pool says, that shirt that you're wearing, is that Issaquah, Washington? Because we live right near Issaquah, Washington, all the way here in Miami, Florida. How about that? That is weird. Yes. Yes, it is. Florida. Did you talk to him or did you do the typical kind of snooty? I don't want to talk to stranger routine and keep it moving. Did you make conversation? No goofing off, Hotshot Scott, like (laughs) online school here. No looking at YouTube videos of Leonard Skinner while we're trying to record the show. None of that. I want Fine. your undivided attention. This is a vitally important show. Ask me why. Well, I would love to know why this show in particular is vitally important. It's not. I have absolutely no idea. Stump the band. <laughs> Let's right, begin with Stump the band. Major League Baseball run differential is our category. Are you ready? Well, I got to tell you, my wife gave me the exact same trivia question this morning, so I am ready. (laughs) She gave it to me to give to you. Okay. (laughs) She wants to know if you listen. Uh, Stump the band. Major League Baseball run differential. What team in Major League Baseball, Hot Shot Scott, has the best run differential in the major leagues? I am going to guess. The Texas Rangers. Houston Astros are plus 55. They're fifth best. The LA Dodgers are plus 66. They're fourth best. The Atlanta Braves are plus 73 and 16 games over 500. They are third best in Major League Baseball. The Tampa Bay Rays are 136 to the positive. And listen to this. 27 games over 500 through 65 games of the season. They're in second place in run differential. The Texas Rangers yes. are plus 153 runs after like 65 games of the Major League Baseball season. Let me just put that into its proper perspective. Your Seattle Mariners are like dead square. Okay. Zero. Zero, zero. Gotcha. There's zeros across the board. Texas is plus 153. They're hitting 275 as a team. Number one in baseball. The Mariners, 229. So mm. the Texas Rangers are out hitting the Mariners by literally 50 points through 65 games of the regular season. How does that all make you feel? Northwest baseball guy. Aren't the Mariners sort of responsible for maybe 50 of those runs just in that three game <laughs> series? I mean, they should be they should be giving the Mariners a little something for helping them out there, right? Ah. I mean, oh, yeah, it hurts. It hurts. God, it hurts. got good fast. Mitch Unfiltered is available on all podcast platforms. Subscribe and rate us, please, on Apple. 
Also, did you know that I host several weekly short-form shows available to Mitch Unfiltered patrons, we call them. It's $5 a month. Go to MitchUnfiltered.com and become a patron. You get peace shows with Danny O'Neill, shooting the shit with Slick, Mariner's Note Tables every week with Jason Churchill and Joey Doyle, all kinds of good stuff for Mitch Unfiltered. Or you can just write me at Mitch at MitchUnfiltered.com and tell me, hey, I can't do the $5 a month and I'll just throw it your way for nothing like Alex Valdez did. Well, he wrote me. It wasn't about needing the patron shows for for free. He wrote me. He wrote, Mitch, I didn't realize you had a soft spot for women beaters. I'm not surprised considering you're a bit of a womanizer yourself, but this was a new low for you. What if it was your mom or daughter he had thrown off a balcony, Jim Brown, you trying to suggest to Scott that he should change his opinion on this piece of human garbage is quite literally disgusting, Mitch. If you had a daughter or were raised by a single mom who experienced domestic violence, I have a feeling you wouldn't be so eager to overlook this kind of behavior. Do better, Mitch. Alex Valdez. This is where we're starting the show. I mean, we're really kicking it off with this, no, this we, discussion. We, we kicked it off with uh, Stump the Band. Oh, yeah, that's true. <laughs> There's a lot to unpack there. If you want to start it with this, first of all, Jim Brown wasn't a womanizer necessarily. That That isn't, I mean, so I wouldn't use that word. It's a little, he was a brutalizer of women. So let's call it what it is. You never said you want me to change my mind no. or, or suggested I I that I should. I hope I didn't. You just said, listen to the interview. And then I'd like your thoughts, essentially. That's all I said. So even though I tend to agree with the emailer, I just want to make sure that he understands and that we understand that. Yes, I think. Wait a second. You tend to agree with the emailer that I got to be better and I stoop to to new lows. I agree with his thoughts on Jim Brown. Okay. I just would hope that I would say it in a little less unlettered fashion and I wouldn't call you out for personal things and all that. But I listened, like you said, um, I, I made it. Through most of it, I think I stopped a few minutes after the whole selfie story that he told. And uh-huh. I tried and I just I can't find the the life of a man who admittedly couldn't stop beating the shit out of women, a fit subject for humor. And I didn't finish the whole thing. Okay. I, like I said, I, ma- I made it most of it. Okay. I just I couldn't do it. I really tried. I really listened and I really tried. I, I can't buy off on he's complicated. It's it's a tangled web. He had a bad childhood. Okay, so now what? Like Josh Gordon had a bad childhood too. Did you feel like that the interviewee, the the writer, the biographer of the book, Dave Zirin, was trying to excuse his behavior or was he just trying to illuminate all sides of Jim Brown? The latter. I mean, he even okay, says, I'm, uh, yeah, he even said the words, I'm not making excuses for his behavior. He was just right. giving context. So right, right. I, got nothing, I got nothing against him, but... I actually went back and watched the episode of Secrets of the Playboy Mansion just to kind of refresh myself. And yeah, I feel exactly the same after listening to that interview. I think he's an awful, awful person. And there's plenty of people who are happy to go on camera and give their testimonies as to what they saw and the women they had to help to the emergency room from the Playboy Mansion that was covered up. Yeah. Again, it's hearsay. You can take it for what it's worth, but there's eyewitness accounts of him beating the shit out of women who are screaming for help. Was that the only reason that you went back and rewatched Secrets of the Playboy Mansion? <laughs> well, to be fair, I did fast forward. I didn't want to, but I did. I fast forwarded to that park. So, you know, I was pretty passionate and still am. And I want to make sure. Did I, yeah. did I hear that right? Yeah, it's the first time? Totally fine. Totally fine. Maybe you like yep. the Cameron interview. I don't know. Dear Mitch, <laughs> never... <laughs> 
Never once did I feel like you took a side on this issue. You brought in a professional that knew the life of an individual none of us ever met and presented on it. Some people can be heroic, but not heroes resonated with me. Statistics estimate that 30% of domestic violence cases go unreported and that anywhere from one in three to one in four females and males will experience domestic violence in their lifetime. Therefore, much, much more important is that a subject like this might fire us up to watch for signs of abuse of folks in our circle and people we know. Anyone taking this opportunity to attack you is off base and missing the point entirely. That being said, when it comes to Hot Shots contributions on your show, oh, he's really good. Oh, that's nice. I did not see that coming at all, but... <laughs> I don't know. I just like, are you going to have Bill Cosby's biographer on to talk about how funny he was and how successful he was? And, uh, you know, Bill did some things, but, you know, I'm just kind of wondering, like, what the purpose is of 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 having this other side on. I don't view it that way. I view it as having somebody on to talk about the many layers of a human being, even if the human being is cruel, is terrible, is the worst human Mm -hmm. being on the face of the earth. The answer to your question is, if there was a biographer of Bill Cosby and it was a mainstream book and it was a popular book that was getting attention, yeah, I'd have that guy on. I don't think I would run away from an interview with a biographer of a book just because the subject matter did some really, really horrible things and maybe the world's worst human being. I'd have a biographer of Hitler on if there was a good one. I think it's interesting if it's done the right way. I think that's good context for people. Phew. I'm glad you explained it that way because I don't want people to think, well, you know, Mitch went to Syracuse. He's in the bag. See, he that's the thing. And it, it's, that's it's the not thing. that. That's the yeah. thing. I hope that's not the thing. I mean, I had him on because of the things that you said when we were talking in the RIP segment a week earlier or two weeks earlier. I said to myself, you know what? I think of Jim Brown as... An incredible athlete. Yes, he went to Syracuse. I know that there's a checkered part of his past. I'm not sure that I know all about it. You knew much more about it than I did. I knew that there were some issues. So I figured, let's have on the biographer, the guy who wrote the book, the guy who spent two weeks with him, and let him lay out for us the nine instances of domestic abuse. I led with that. I didn't bury that. I didn't put that in the middle of the interview. I didn't put that at the end of the interview. I started with, it sounds like he's a terrible human being by all the things that he, that's what I started with intentionally. So anyway, sup, Mitchie. That's what it started. (laughs) Sup, Mitchie. Long time listener, radio and pod, and even enjoy Hotshot. I get your angst over Jared Kelnick, but shouldn't we all be massive fans? He's the key piece to us being a contender for years to come. Huge fan of your pod and JK, Matt, not Bob Welch. Wasn't Bob Welch a pitcher? Yeah, he was. Yeah. The A's, maybe? Back when I used to watch sports? Yes, I think so. With Dave yeah. Stewart. Yeah, with Smoke. Yeah. Oh, what a team. Those. Is that going to be kind of sad on a side note when if the A's go to Vegas? I mean, do you remember some of those teams they had like in the late 80s, early 90s? They were like the best team in baseball for a big part of my, they my sure high were. school, it felt like. Weren't they, they sure were. Wasn't Dave Henderson a big uh, contributor of that team? Yep. Hit Don't the big Walt home run. there at no. shortstop. Oh, Walt oh, Weiss. Fantastic. Oh, member of the tribe, Walt Weiss. <laughs> come on. Really? Wow, come on. If his name's Weiss, he's got to be a member of the tribe. <laughs> Guests on this episode 242. <laughs> you figured that I would do it, and I did. Bob Herrig, the longtime ESPN and now Sports Illustrated golf writer. He's also an author on the whole mess. Live golf, Saudi blood money, 
in bed now at the PGA Tour. That's the big news of the week. Came out on Tuesday morning that the PGA Tour is no longer fighting with the Saudi Arabia uh, investment fund, the blood money. Instead, they are partnering up. Why? How did this happen? It was a stunner for so many of us. What's the explanation? How should we feel about this? Bob Herrig is guest number one. Brady Henderson, ESPN Seahawks insider. The big stories coming out of Seahawks minicamp, which just ended over there in Renton. And Danny O'Neill, who couldn't be on the Peace Show this week because he was traveling. Longtime Seattle sports voice, 710 ESPN and the Seattle Times. Four topics for Danny. Similar topics to what you and I will talk about in the first segment. Number one, the disappointment of the Seattle Mariners this year. They just can't get out of their own way. Who's to blame? Seahawks minicamp, live golf. I don't know if you saw this. The NBA commissioner has addressed publicly expansion, probably to Seattle and Las Vegas. We'll talk about that with Danny O'Neill as well. Okay, Hot Shots, Scott. Episode 242 begins in a moment. First, a few words about our partners like the Woodenville Office of Cross Country Mortgage. If you go by everything you read these days about interest rates and the Fed, you'd never buy a house. Then answer me this. Why are houses still being sold? If you're buying a home, a second home, an investment piece, just give Jordan Flowers and his team a call. They're very creative. They might surprise you. 425 890 2957. When you think about Daniel's broiler, the first thing that comes to mind, the best steaks in the world, prepared perfectly, and the -the over-the-top pampering and service from the moment you walk through the doors. But don't forget, outdoor dining at Daniel's broiler, on the deck at Leshy, the seaplanes at South Lake Union, overlooking the world at Bellevue Place, danielsbroiler.com. You got to love Daniel's broiler, a world-class steakhouse. Evergreen Golf Call, tax advisors, certified financial planners, experienced portfolio managers working together to bring retirement planning taxes and investments under one roof, evergreengk.com. More than just a financial advisor, Evergreen is everything wealth. And Zeke's Pizza, celebrating a complete makeover of their mobile app. Remote ordering has gotten easier than ever. Download and try it. Get yourself a Cherry Bomb or a Puget Pounder right to your door. Zeke's Pizza, homegrown in the Northwest. John Waterstrat and Fireside Home Solutions, the flagship Bellevue location, just underwent a facelift, and it was beautiful to begin with. Whether it's a brand new fireplace inside or out of garage doors, begin your search and your search at FiresideHomeSolutions.com. Episode 242, it's a good one. It begins right now. Unfiltered. And those Mariners bats come alive with that rotation. Oh. They're going to go on quite a streak. Here's what we weren't asking that we probably should have been asking, which is <laughs> okay. what happens when the rotation cools off <laughs> right. and the bats continue to struggle? Unfiltered. Just about every guy outside of the, the left fielder has been below what they expected production-wise. Gotcha. That's the answer. All right. Well, and so fun. you say, well, are they going to come alive before it's too late? Mitch is unfiltered. Episode 242 is now officially underway. And one of the nice things, well, the only nice thing about not having Hot Shot Scott with me where we're on Zoom and we're doing it from two different locations is when he pops on Zoom, 
he oftentimes has the guitar in his hands while he's doing, while you're recording episode 242, you've got the guitar. Are you going to serenade us at least if you've got the guitar in your hands? <laughs> you called it the only good thing, but let's reserve that until after you hear it, <laughs> as opposed to whether it's considered a good part of the podcast. See, I not. had no idea that when I was preparing episode 242, I yeah. never thought that you were going to sing at the beginning of segment number one. This is going to be good. You're going to sing. Uh, nor did I. <laughs> but sometimes I'll be driving around. I'll hear a song. I'm like, oh, I love that song. And yes. of course, I'll run home because I'm ADD. I got to figure out how to play it. Oh, I yeah. go crazy. So this is one that I heard on uh, the way back from what from channel lunch this morning? With what the station? Well, it was on uh, Amazon Music. Sometimes okay. I'll find a song that I like. I'll play similar music okay. like this. And it popped on. All so. right. Well, I recognize the the ditty. Well, I recognize knowing you, it's a sappy 70s oh, love song. Yes. So I'm going to say right down. Yes, my, I right if you don't know this. I'll be surprised. Yes. Are right you ready? in the wheel zone. Yes. Go ahead. You packed in the morning. I stared out the window and I struggled for something to say. You left in the rain without closing the door. I didn't stand in your way. Nice. Here we go. Yeah. Now I miss you more than I missed you before. And now where I'll find comfort, God knows. And you left me just when I needed you most. Yeah. <laughs> you left me just when I needed you most. Oh, yeah. This is going to be the best episode ever. The most <laughs> highest listened to episode of Mitch Unfiltered of all time. What I is can it? just, I can hear the fast forwarding right now as we speak. Skip, I, skip. I, I feel ashamed to ask this next question. <laughs> what is the name of that song and who sings it? I know that song. I can sing that song, but I don't know that yeah. I know the name of it. Who is it? Well, you could probably do the math on what it's called. It's called just when I needed you most. Just when I needed you. <laughs> yes. By a fella named uh, Randy Van Warmer. Never heard of him. I don't think Randy had another hit. I can't say for certain, but I think that was pretty much it for old Randy. But sounds like a, a song, right? Sounds like a Pirates reliever in the 1970s. Randy Van Warmer. Yeah, yeah. totally. With a mustache yeah. and the whole thing. A Kent sure. Colby yeah. that comes out of the bullpen. <laughs> anyway. Right. Anything, by the way, anything... To avoid having to start with the Seattle Quicksand Mariners. It feels like Groundhog Day every day with our beloved hometown night. Do you realize that on May 28th, the Seattle Mariners beat the Pirates 6-3 to for their sixth win in seven games? They were 6-1 and over those seven games. And they got to 28-25. and on the year, and we're like, okay, here we go now. That's it. Here go. we yep. go now. Here we go. We've started the engine. We started a little late, but now we're going to go chase people down. And ever since that, lousy, a constant battle with 500. They're 10 or so back of the Rangers who we talked about in, in the tease segment. They're looking up at Houston. They're looking up at L.A. They're looking up at Tampa. They're looking up at the Baltimore. They're looking up at the Yankees, the Blue Jays. It's just not happening. It's kind of like we're waiting, waiting, and waiting, and we're going to wake up one day, and it's going to be the last week of the season, and we're going to still, <laughs> still be time. waiting. We still got time, Mitch. Plenty of time left early in the season. God. Oh. <laughs> Keep hearing that. So, so now I, I need you to explain to me exactly what's happening in uh, 12 easy steps. Go ahead. One easy step. One <laughs> okay. easy step. 
They've got great starting pitching, which has not been great lately. And their their offense is not good enough. It's not it's not a different story than any other podcast, any other person on Twitter, any other person writing in a newspaper. Everybody's saying the same stuff. We've talked about it for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. They're going to be talking about it until the end of time. What the Mariners ownership did or in this case did not do during the offseason. Not willing, as I like to call it. I don't know if I did it with you, the spiel. It was either with you or Danny or somebody, a slick hawk. They're never willing to spend uncomfortable money in the offseason. They get to the point where they're like, done. Okay, that's it. That's it. We're not spending any more. The next dollar will be uncomfortable for us as ownership. And the truth is, the only way to build a team where you leave yourself some room for error, and that's the key here, leaving yourself room for error is to spend what I would call uncomfortable money, unless you're the Dodgers, the Red Sox, the Yankees, you know, the, the clubs yeah, that spend no $300 million, Well, there's no such thing as uncomfortable yeah, yeah. money. The point is that the Mariners, they do enough to build in the offseason, but everything's got to go exactly right offensively. So the Colton Wong thing's got to work. The Suarez thing's got to be really good the second year. The Teoscar Hernandez acquisition, he's got to be what he was in Toronto. And if one or two or the three of these things fall short of expectations, they haven't spent enough money and haven't done enough to be able to overcome disappointment, right? So there's no room for error. There's never any room for error offensively. The only way that they're going to accomplish what we all think that they could or should accomplish is if everyone does exactly what they're expected to do. Anything short of that, they fall short as a team. That, to me, is an, in a nutshell what the Seattle Mariners organization is all about. But let's say they go out and get one of those shortstops and maybe another bat. I mean, are we really here going to sit here and say that would be the reason they would be 10 games over 500 if they would have made that move or those two moves? I mean, it feels like we're, we're sort of scapegoating that a bit. Like one or two guys would have made all the difference well, in the world. Well, it's I mean, not everything. The, it's not everything. Aren't the players to blame themselves, though, yes. the guys who were hitting below yes. their weight? Yes, yeah. of course. Of course okay. they are. Of course they are. But yes, if they had a shortstop that right now was hitting 280 with 15 home runs and was an uh-huh. American League all-star shortstop, instead of being a game or two under 500 or over 500, they might be five or seven games four or five or six games over 500 and in position to make the run that we're sitting here waiting for every single yeah. day that I say we're going to wake up with a week to go in the season going, okay, when <laughs> when is this going to start? When's the run coming? Right. So I just think that they're not willing to spend, as I like to call it, uncomfortable dollars during the offseason. Now, of course, their, their response would be, wait a second, Mitch, that's not fair. We spend uncomfortable dollars on Luis Castillo. We spent yep. uncomfortable dollars on Julio Rodriguez. We did this. We did that. Robbie Ray. Robbie Ray. We acquired the Pyramid Brewery and turned That's it into true. something special. <laughs> um, a pitcher now. Yeah. So it has pitchers, but uh, what? What does your gut tell you on the tra- uh, the uh, trade deadline? Do you think they're going to make any moves well, at all? Or well, my mindset has changed on what, okay. as a Mariners fan, I'd like them to do. If they were closer, I just think they're so far underneath where they need to be that to go out and trade for kind of a rental player, a player who's at the end of the contract that comes in as like a hired gun to be great for two months and bring us to the postseason, 
I, I don't think that they should do that. I don't think that that should be even a consideration anymore because they're just too far away. They're too far removed from where they need to be. Now, if they're willing to go spend prospects for, let's say, guys with another year or two on their contracts, guys that can come on in and not only help for the remainder of this year, but will be there next year offensively to help and the following year to be, I'd be a proponent of that because they're obviously going to have to do that, whether it's before the trading deadline or during the next offseason anyway. But the old-fashioned trade deadline deal, you've yeah. seen it a million times, where you take some of your best prospects, you train them to somebody for a guy who's going to be a free agent at the end of the year so that he can come and play two months of a rental player to help you into the postseason, and then he probably leaves and goes somewhere else in free agency, I think that type of deal is completely out the window for the Seattle Mariners. They should not do anything of the type. <laughs> Mandatory minicamp for the Seahawks is now in the books, and everybody's raving hotshot okay. about one of their first-round draft choices, the wide receiver out of Ohio State. You want to try his name? Jackson no, smith and Jigba, say it after me. Jackson Smith and Jigba, hotshot Scott. Yeah, I did see a video of him uh, torching oh. our new cornerback. He's crisp coming out of his breaks, whatever that means. <laughs> He's smooth. Yes. He is a natural, gifted pass catcher. He's got I more so. than adequate speed. Everybody is on their ear, their collective ear, about Jackson Smith and Jigba. And all I would say about being on your ear about a wide receiver during mandatory mini camps is go back over the last many, many years. There's always a wide receiver that you're on your ear about during right. mandatory mini camps. That's how I'm I mean, I feel the same way. Like when I watch the Husky spring game, I love watching a great play. But yeah, the guy he beats on the team I root for. I mean, how excited am I supposed to be? He just torched one of our starting cornerbacks. Like, OK, it's. It's 50-50. Yes, I'm happy for him, but he's killing our guys. So. Yeah, he torched one we'll of your see. cornerbacks with no one wearing pads, where the cornerbacks right. are not allowed to play physical with them at the line of scrimmage, right, where the cornerbacks right. are not even allowed to make a play on the ball when it's in the air, <laughs> when nobody is blocking, there's no offensive line, and there's no yeah. pass rush. Yes. Let me put it this way. If there aren't wide receivers that stand out in that drill, in that environment, you've got the <laughs> yeah. worst wide receivers in the history of the National Football League. And look, people are going to say, Mitch, what are you doing now? Here goes Mitch. He's bagging on Jackson Smith. No, 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 no. I'm excited about him. First round draft choice, Ohio State. I'd rather have his wide receiver partner who's going to be in the draft next year, who uh, happens to be the son of a former Syracuse great named Marvin Harrison. Rather have oh, the Harrison sure. kid. But this guy looks special, but I would not. I'm going, whoa, 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 whoa. Stop showing me highlights of mini yeah. camp drills to tell me that this guy's going to be a pro bowler in his first year. Please stop. <laughs> Everybody just pipe down a little bit. Let's just relax. Take a deep breath. Everyone looks great in helmets only drills. I've seen oh. it many times. Everyone looks even at my level, high school level, all that. Well, only wide receivers really look good. Yeah. I mean, like offensive players. I mean, they're flying around, yeah, but then when you yeah, put yeah. the shoulder pads on and all the gear and you got, yeah, yeah it's uh, and you've got the defensive so staff saying to, by the way, their other number one draft choice, Devin Witherspoon, who is by the way, the number, I think, five pick in the NFL draft, something like that. Yeah. They're saying to him, here's what we want you to do in this drill. Pretend like you're covering 
Jackson Smith and Jerry. Just pretend, <laughs> run with right. him a little bit, and then let yeah. him catch the ball so that people that are standing on the sidelines can all go, oh, my God, look at Jackson Smith and Jigba. <laughs> right. But then I go, wait a second. What about Spoon me? Spoon just got torched. <laughs> but Spoon just got torched. I don't like that. I thought he was supposed to be it's this no all-world player. Yeah, so uh, I yeah. Are you following at all? Do you care about the Live PGA Tour merger that you read all about and you heard all about this past week? Or are you kind of tuning it out as a non-golf guy? I wouldn't say I'm following it, but I also can't say I don't care. I mean, I think it's it's bigger than just golf. I mean, yeah. this is an incredible story. And it's it's funny how many players probably turned that money down from them. Yes. You know, wanting to, to do the right thing in their minds. And then, yeah, but the people I work for now, they're in bed with them. Like, I should have taken the money. I mean, so it's interesting to me. Yeah. Are you disgusted by it? Do you care that the PGA Tour is now in bed with potentially uh, bad, bad guys in blood money? It doesn't feel right. Yes. I don't know if disgusted is quite the, the word. Yeah. You know, I'd have to read a little bit more about it. But yes, if you're going to get in bed with those kinds of people that have been accused of what they've been accused of. Yes, it it doesn't feel right. It feels like the PGA is doing OK by themselves and that they maybe don't need help from that kind of money. When I woke up to the news this past Tuesday, I turned on the television and there it was. I did a double take like everybody else. No one saw this coming. This truly was the best kept secret. I think in modern day sports in the social media world. Yeah. Think about it. Nobody saw this coming. Tiger Woods didn't see this coming. And as yet, as we record this, to even respond to this, Rory McElroy didn't see this. Nobody saw this coming. This was an absolute secret between the PGA Tour and the Saudi Arabian Investment Fund. I was shocked. I was pissed. I was mm-hmm. angry. I was like, I can't believe he's doing it about face after all that he has said about these guys and they'll, they'll never do business. He's turning around and he's actually signing an agreement, Jay Monahan, with uh, with Live Golf. And then as the days went on and I started to learn, when it first came out on Tuesday, the news was very incomplete. It was unclear mm-hmm. what it all meant. What was the partnership going to be like? What did it mean for tournaments that I watch and prize money? And are they going to be allowed back on the PGA Tour? Are they going to be allowed back without consequences? Are they going to have to jump through hoops? Or Everything was unknown. It was just a yeah. very vague story. And why? Nobody really was explaining at the very beginning why. As the days have gone on, I've learned more and more about what happened, and why it happened. I think I've gone from angry, pissed, and astonished to sad and disappointed. The more we read about this, and you're going to be, you're going to hear about this in segment one from Bob Harrig, the more yeah. it, it sounds like the PGA Tour just got played like a fiddle by that investment. Oh, really? oh my God. Basically, a hostile takeover. That live really? golf, yeah. They targeted the PGA Tour. Their timing was impeccable. At least this is my feeling. The PGA Tour was in a very vulnerable situation. You go back to the pandemic, and you're going to hear this from Bob Herrick. The PGA Tour lost a ton of money during the pandemic because they were okay. trying to operate tournaments with no fans. Yeah administer tests, COVID tests, trying to keep the thing afloat. And that cost millions and millions and millions of dollars. Then after that, Liv attacked. They started poaching some of the great players and giving them all kinds of money. 
Yeah. And that brought up the notion that maybe more and more and more and more players and that the PGA Tour would almost cease to exist. So to combat that, what did the PGA Tour do? They upped the purses. They threw more money at the current players. They said, hey, stay on the PGA Tour, play this schedule. And this tournament, instead of the winner's check being $1.5 million, it's going to be $3 million. It's going to yeah. be four. Threw a ton of money. So they lost a lot of money in that exchange. And then... To compound all of that, the lawsuits that the PGA Tour had with Liv that were going to go on for years, this Saudi Arabian investment fund has endless money. Right. The PGA Tour was in over its head because even if they had won these lawsuits, the attorney's fees over all of these years were going to be $50 million, $100 million. And if they right. lost the lawsuits, it would cost a lot more. Not just in attorney's fees, but but the ramifications and the fallout. So what Live Golf did is they attacked at the right time. Jay Monahan and the officers of the PGA Tour looked at the whole picture and thought, geez, we're going to run out of money. We can't battle with these guys for the next five years in courts and, and pay those kind of legal fees and continue to raise purses and all this stuff. It almost feels like they had no choice. It was a hostile takeover. And that they had to, because they couldn't beat them, join them. And right. that's the way this thing ended up. Yeah, it's interesting because the little we've talked about it, it felt like nobody was watching Live Golf. Nobody like, was. The ratings were shit. And the PGA could care. almost like look down their nose at them, like beat it, little guy. Right. No one's caring about you. So I, I never in a million years thought they were even in a position to have to join up. I didn't know it was the financial issues. Do you think it had anything to do with the way Liv came at golf? Like, hey, it's fun. It's exciting. No. We got the music. No. Nothing to do with that at I don't all. think it had anything. Money. Had nothing to do with that. I don't you know what I'm saying, well, right? The yeah, environment yeah, I know was what different. You're saying. I know what you're saying, yeah. and I may be wrong. We'll listen to Bob Herrick explain it. He's a lot closer to it than me. But right. from my perspective, paying close attention, reading all the articles, seeing what some of the key players in this thing have been talking about, this came down to dollars and cents. This hmm. came down to the PGA Tour freaking out over the fact that the money that they had in reserves, the hundreds of millions of dollars that they've been spending wildly since the uh -huh. pandemic and all as a result of the attack and Live Golf's threat to take hmm. all of their players away. And now this litigation, you put it all together, and I think economically they felt like they had no, no other recourse than to just... Join them, try to join them in a way where they keep them at bay. Yes, keep okay. them at bay and do whatever they got to do to end the court proceedings and to end the legal expenses. You may address this in the interview, so you don't have to give an answer. But so where does this leave somebody like Mitch Levy, who loves the PGA Tour, has been well, watching it his whole life? I believe that if people like Mitch Levy, who like to watch the, the tour on TV, can ignore where some of the money is coming. And I say some of the money, not all of the money. If you can figure out a way to just put that aside where that money, it's going to be better for the guys like Mitch Levy, because mm -hmm. let's face it, guys like me who watch golf from week to week, we want to watch the best players in the world. Yeah. We want Dustin Johnson to be out there. We want Cameron Smith to be out there. We want Bryson DeChambeau to be out there. We'd like for an old Phil Mickelson to be out there taking a shit all over himself so that we can make fun of it. 
I would we, love to see that. Yes, we we want all the great players playing in the in the weekly events. And what this is going to do is it's going to bring everybody back together again. Now, how they're going to resolve, if they're even going to try to resolve, the guys like Rory McIlroy and Colin Morikawa and some of the other guys that said no to probably 50 to $100 million to join right. the live. And now they're joining. What they're going to do for those guys, I don't know. I don't really think they have to do much. There's a rumor out there that they're going to give them equity in the partnership, like a little slice of the pie, all those that remain true. And there's also rumors that there are going to be punishments, monetary punishments to the live golfers to get back on the PGA Tour. But in the end, they decided not to go. What happened, happened. They could have gone if they yeah. wanted to. They could have accepted the Saudi Arabian money if they wanted to. They didn't. But they're going to be okay. It's hard to get too bent out of shape on behalf of guys that are going to be making 20, 30, 40 million dollars a year for the next 15 years. And the truth is, is that with all this money coming in and the raised purses, the Colin Morikawas and the, you know, and all these guys, they're going to be just yeah. fine. Three interviews yeah. and then the other stuff segment. We'll begin with Bob Herrick, the author and longtime ESPN sports writer, golf writer on the whole mess. Brady Henderson on the stories coming out of Seahawks minicamp. And Danny O'Neill on four big topics, including the NBA bringing NBA expansion back up publicly, the commissioner at the NBA finals. How about the turn in weather in the Pacific Northwest last week? And don't you dare complain about it being too hot. Don't know about you, but when the sun comes out and the temperatures rise, the Levy family always looking for fun restaurants to go with outside seating. And maybe that's not the first thing that comes to mind when I say Daniel's Broiler, but whoa, the less shy location sits at the edge of Lake Washington with fabulous views. The South Lake Union spot has a vamped deck that allows you to enjoy the seaplanes while having a steak or salmon. And then there are the terraces atop the world in Bellevue. Western views across the lake to the skyline of downtown Seattle. Yeah, they're known for USDA prime steaks and super fresh seasonal seafood, not to mention my favorite bacon wrap scallops. But on a nice day, a nice Seattle day, just nothing better than Daniel's Broiler world-class steakhouses. Ladies and gentlemen, she's the director of financial planning at our Mitch Unfiltered partner, Evergreen Golf Call, Katie Versio. She's also my arch nemesis when it comes to financial trivia. Katie, how are you? How's everyone over at Evergreen Golf Call? I'm doing well, Mitch. Thanks for having me. Everybody's good over there. Our theme today is what? So today we're doing a market update. Okay. Which brings us to three questions. I typically go over three. I'm I'm feeling good. I'm feeling good today. So I'm ready for question number one. As I know, we discussed quite a bit over the last few months. 2022 was the worst year on record for a balanced portfolio with both stocks and bonds down double digits. So true or false? In 2023, both stocks and bonds are up. Is that true or false? It's absolutely true, Katie Versio. That's right. Yes. It is true. Yes. 
So the market is off to a much better start this year, even though there's a lot more economic uncertainty. Mm-hmm. The stock market's up about 8% and bonds are up nearly 3%. Very good. And I am up one for one, which screams at me, quit, Mitch. Quit right now and go out one for one. But I'm not going to do it. I'm going to press my luck. What's question number two, Katie? Okay, so number two is another true or false. We'll see how you do with this one. So the yield curve is currently inverted, meaning that short-term interest rates are higher than long-term interest rates. Is that true or false? I'm going to say false, Katie. That's false. It's actually true. Uh, so I know it's uh, it's counterintuitive. Typically, you think the longer time frame you have, the more interest you get. Mm-hmm. But it's actually the opposite in this environment. It's typically an indication of a recession, and you actually get more interest for shorter time periods. That's actually surprising. It leaves me one for two. I'm not quitting. I'm continuing to press my luck. I'm going two for three. What's question number three, Katie? The 10-year treasury currently pays an interest rate of 3.5%. So knowing what we talked about in number two, what do six month treasuries yield? So 10 year yields three and a half. Does a six month treasury yield 4%, 5% or 6%? We know more. Question is how much more? I'm going B. I'm going 5% for 667. I'm going 5% for two out of three today. That's right, it is 5%. So it's an interesting environment where you only get three and a half percent for holding a position for 10 years, but you get 5% on the short term. So it's a really interesting environment with interest rates elevated at this level. We think now is a good time to lock in return. You can get better interest rates on money markets now. There's a lot more options for investors to park their cash than just a regular savings account. It's an unusual time in the world, the financial world, and they are there for you. EvergreenGK.com. Not only a great partner of Mitch Unfiltered and part of the reason that we are possible on this podcast, but just a terrific resource. So check them out, evergreengk.com. Unfiltered. It's hard for me to not sit up here and feel somewhat like a sacrificial lamb and, you know, feeling like I've put myself out there and this is what happens. Again, removing myself from the situation, I see how this is better for the game of golf. There's no denying that. Well, there's no debating the most talked about story in the world of sports in the last week or two. The stunning partnership between the PGA Tour and the controversial Saudi Arabian Sovereign Wealth Fund that finances live. The golf world's reaction, Jay Monahan's astonishing reversal and all the fallout, most of which, frankly, I'm still trying to figure out and understand. Bob Herrig has been covering the sport for a very long time, many years with ESPN, now Sports Illustrated, the author of the book Tiger and Phil, golf's most fascinating rivalry, now available in paperback. Bob, thanks for being back on the show. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Good to talk to you today. (laughs) Has anyone heard from Tiger, by the way? No. Tiger so far has been silent. Nothing's come from his agent. My guess is, is that everybody on Tiger's in Tiger's realm, including his agent and the people that his agent represents, none of them went to live and none of them have been positive about it. And Justin Rose talked at the uh, Canadian Open. Uh, Justin Rose is a 
Excel client. He he was very down on live even even after this thing went down. Mm. So um, I I wonder if Tiger is mad or upset because obviously he wasn't in the loop. Neither was Rory. Those guys had a big role in um in in obviously kind of trying to get the tour to fight off live. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know it was a very close, tight circle of people who were in in on these negotiations and. You know, I wouldn't be surprised if Tiger, you know, is trying to just sort of uh, cool his jets a little bit before he says anything. Why isn't Rory mad? Um, I think deep down he is, but he's probably just not going to show that because he doesn't want to give off any kind of vibe that, you know, that there's a fracture, that there's annoyance. I thought he handled his news conference on Wednesday really well. He he sort of suggested that personally he feels a little bit wounded. He put his neck out there and he, what was that all for? But he acknowledged that, you know, we're fighting against this entity that has almost an endless supply of money. And now instead of fighting them, you know, they're our partner and it's going to set up the tour nicely down the road, the actual PGA tour. What it all means though, in terms of, of of who's calling the shots or what all happens, I think is still to be decided. There's so many things that have to get worked out. It appears that the PGA Tour has been able to keep its power with the PGA Tour, but they have given Yasser Al Romain a seat on the PGA Tour policy board. Right. You know, and so he's gonna have a voice. And and their money is going to be helping the tour. And sometimes money talks. You just said, Bob, that it's going to set up nicely for the PGA Tour down the line. Explain what that means to the people who don't understand in our audience. Well, I think there's a couple of things in play here. In order to fight off live, they've had to throw a lot of money back into the tour to try to compensate the players better to keep them from going. So not only were they fighting a lawsuit that Liv had taken against them that was going to drag on and was costing them millions, they've had to come up with a lot more money for these designated events. You know, the highest purses that the tour had was like their own tournament. The Players' Championship was $20 million. Most of their tournaments were in the $8 million range. A couple of them were 12. They now are going to have seven of them, or excuse me, six of them next year will be $20 million purses. The players championship will be 25. The century in Hawaii will be 15. There's probably an increase there of a hundred million dollars total roughly from last year. Well, where's that coming from? Well, the title sponsors are already paying a lot. I, I've been using the, the Wells Fargo championship as an example, the tournament in Charlotte. Since it's come on board about 20 years ago, it's been one of the top events on tour. It usually gets a very good field. It's been positioned very nicely wherever, whenever it's been. For a while, it was the week before the Players' Championship, which meant it got a good field. Now it's two weeks before the PGA Championship. Good field. They've been doing just fine without being a designated event. Last year, 2022, their purse was in the 8 to $9 million range. And the total commitment for Wells Fargo was probably about $14 million. This year, they went to $20 million to be a designated event. The tour was helping subsidize the difference between $9 million and $20 million. So let's say they, the tour went six and Wells Fargo went five. So now Wells Fargo's commitment goes from $14 million to $19 million. Did they get a better field? Sure. 
designated events have gotten really good fields, but they didn't have Scheffler and Rahm. They would probably argue our fields were fine without being designated. Next year, the onus is all on the title sponsors. So now that 19 million that had been 14 million is going to be more like 26 million. These title sponsors were balking. And so the tour's in a bind. They committed to these bigger events. Well, where's the money going to come from? Right. They, they only have so much in their reserves. The tour dipped into its reserves heavily in 2020 during COVID. They came back, they played a bunch of tournaments with no fans. There was no revenue, but they were still paying out the purse. And, you know, there was still all the infrastructure that these local organizations had to have to make these events run. And the tour had to help finance it. And it was a drain. All the, remember all the testing? They tested every week. They had charters between some tournaments where everybody on the flight was tested and had to be negative before they could get on. It was huge. So let's say they had $300 million in their reserves. Well, maybe they tapped into 75 million of them to make it all work. And then, you know, now this comes along. Remember, there's that player impact program thing. The first yep. year it was 50 million. Yep. This year it was 100. So there's 150 million gone. It was coming from their reserves. They didn't have the revenue to cover it. They, they already had sort of counted for their revenue in terms of the new TV deal. You know, that was going to over the next six to eight, 10 years, incrementally go up and their purses were going to go up. But they weren't planning on them going to 20 million now. Bob, it sounds like what you're saying is that the PGA Tour overextended themselves, was running short on money, and was facing hundreds of millions potentially in litigation over the next many years. Absolutely. I mean, as, as flush as we think the PGA Tour is or has been, they might have seen themselves in, in, in some dire straits ah. here. These guys come in, we're going to end the litigation. All right, there's millions saved. They're going to actually help us. Now, to what degree and how and how that will be sorted out? I mean, will they just subsidize purses? Will the PIF be a presenting sponsor at a tournament? Will their name be branded? They're starting this for-profit arm, which in theory gives the tour a chance to make other money on the side. But all of a sudden, yeah. fighting lives yeah. has become you know, a huge albatross. And now that's gone. My sense is, is that they're not going to lose players to live if live even exists. If a, if a John Rahm wants to go play live and, and somehow live still is in existence, John Rahm will still be allowed to play on the PJ Tour, which is what they don't want to have. They don't want to lose them. And it won't be their money paying them to go over there if, if he even does. And look, frankly, we have no idea how that's yeah, going to look. Right, right. There's so many ideas and conjecture. And frankly, I don't think anybody really knows what's going to happen. The PIF side of things has been quiet. The tour has been very out front. Monaghan talked. Jimmy Dunn, who kind of brokered this deal. Rory. They've all been talking like the tour has won. You know, we're in charge. And, and look, I think to a large degree they have. But, but I think there's more to the story than, than we're hearing right now. Bob, let's explore some of the main players in this crazy deal. Start with PGA Tour Commissioner Jay Monahan. What in your mind is, and maybe you've just talked about it, the main reason for the about face? And is there a personal pile of cash that Monahan is going to receive? I've seen some speculator report $100 million going into Monahan's account. That has led to is the, the world saying, ah, Monahan's doing 
exactly what Mickelson and Johnson and the rest of them have done before him? I can't answer whether or not he's been paid, but he's been made the CEO of this new venture in addition to being commissioner of the PJ Tour, which is probably a 13 to $15 million a year gig, depending on the bonus stuff. So if he's going to be the CEO of this new for-profit venture, I can't believe that he's not going to be paid for that. And the money for the new venture is basically coming from the PIF. So if the money's coming from the PIF, perhaps they said, yeah, we're going to give you a hundred million over the next 10 years. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's possible. You know, I I don't, I don't know that. Okay. I do not know that. Why did he change? I think he changed his mind because of all those things I said, right. You know, he saw the board saw where they were going. They were going to keep spending millions in, in court costs. Live did not appear to be going away. While while there's been a lot of negativity about it, all oh, the bad TV ratings, this, you know, they don't draw any fans. Well, they drew a lot of fans in Australia and Singapore. They did pretty well in Tulsa and Washington, D.C. I think they were starting to find their, their form a little bit. Does this team thing work? I don't know. I don't think it was been trotted out properly. And so I think that has hurt Liv. They've not gotten the message across on that. But I think they were building a little bit of momentum. And now if they want to continue, and again, we have no idea for all I know tomorrow, the PIF is going to just kill it. They've said 2023 is going to go on as scheduled, but you know, they could just pull the plug at any time, but they are acting like business as usual. Like they're, they're putting a schedule in place for next year. And now any stigma associated with live is basically gone, or at least it's been taken away. Like if you were a company that wanted to invest in live, but you felt weird about the moral aspects or the, you know, the political aspects and you were afraid about the backlash, well, now they're, they're partners. You know, you can say the same thing about every single PJ Tour sponsor. Are they going to bail on the PJ Tour now because they associated with Saudi Arabia? Maybe some of them will, but you know, there's a lot more of them that won't because it's in a way it's sort of been made okay yeah bob the tour players were kept in the dark many of them found out on social media just like i did the contentious players meeting prior to the canadian open could there be an anti-monahan revolt is there an anti-monahan revolt do any of the players like this because you just explained behind the scenes where the money was coming from to them it's just money and we don't want it coming maybe some of them don't want it coming from piff I think in the end, when they see what it means, they'll probably be okay with it. I get why people hate live and the PIF and Saudi and all the reasons that we could bring up. All right. I, and whenever this has come up over the last year plus, anybody who has brought up the idea, I just can't get behind this. You know, I think they were involved in 9-11. Look at what they do to people over there. You know, their human rights, kingdom, all that stuff. And I say, I can't argue with you because it's an emotional issue that, that is going to, and, you know, the live people should have known or could have known a lot of people were never going to get past that. That's perfectly fine. There's a lot of legitimate reasons to not like it, but the bottom line is, is that, you know, I don't really think the players are aggrieved because of that. I think they are upset because they had been told one thing yeah, and now something else is happening. Right. And some of them probably deep down maybe wanted to go and they decided, nope, I'm going to stick with the tour. I like what Jay Monahan is saying. 
I don't think I should be playing for that blood money. You know, these are the terms that were used. You know, Monaghan was very clear. Do you want to be associated with those people? Has anybody ever been embarrassed about playing for the PGA Tour? Those are the things he said. And, and now he's partners with them. And so obviously he's going to take heat for that. It's going to look bad. Jay, I think there's probably some people that have lost confidence. But here's the thing. Two very, very prominent PJ Tour policy board members were behind him on this. And Rory seems to be behind him. The policy board is 10 people. It's five businessmen and five players. So there's already three of the 10 that we know of that are on board. My sense is that the other three business people who maybe weren't part of the negotiations, they might have been let in on it. Right. Well, it's quite possible that they're going to support their other colleagues. And that's all it takes for Jay to last. Any chance for some of those players who turned down live to recoup some of that money? They, they're talking about that. But like the thing that I don't get about that is, is just like the live guys made their decision and the tour players said, look, that was your decision. You made the decision to go over there. That's fine. Now you deal with the repercussion. It's the same for them. They made the decision not to do it. There was nothing stopping them from doing it. And so they turned it down. I, I'm not sure like why they feel that they now need to be repaid. Apparently, Monaghan said in the, in the player meeting the other day that the top 10 guys in the PJ Tour are going to make just as much or more money as those guys over time. Now, how that's going to happen, we have not seen. Are they going to announce some big, robust purse structure for next year where you see all of these, these purses are even more? Then you'll start to see, you know, is there some sort of a bonus pool that's bigger? Is there guaranteed pay somehow that's even more? None of those questions have been answered. Any idea if Liv goes away, whether the current guys would have to give back any of the money or not get paid the full amount like Mickelson's $200 million? It's my understanding that Phil was paid it all up front, that those big money guys got the money last year. They have to give it back? No, I doubt it. Yeah. I don't think so. Would the tour find them to come back? Possibly. But I don't think it's going to be quite as severe as some people would like it to be or are making it out that it will be because Yasser, the PIF governor, has a say. Yeah. And, he's, and my guess is he's going to say to Monaghan, wait a minute. Your tour is going to be enhanced by bringing these guys back. Don't hammer them, you know, and plus it's just money that's going from one place to the other. I think there's going to be some penalty. Like, I think the easiest penalty is whenever they do come back, they're not allowed to be full members of the tour for a year. But that would mean they could play as you're when you're a non-member, you can get seven sponsor exemptions. Yeah. And seven sponsor exemptions means that you can play in tour events, but you're not eligible for the FedEx Cup. So they would be allowed to play during the year, but they couldn't play in the playoffs. But look, I think that's kind of a fair penalty. Like there's no guarantee you're going to have full status. You're not eligible for the FedEx Cup. You're going to have to work your way back, which seems fair. Because the bottom line is they did break the rules. They did break the PJ Tours rules, which require you to get a release to play in conflicting events. They've all played in 10 or more without that. Mm -hmm. But look, that's all going to be a negotiation that won't be easy either. Does Phil Mickelson's pariah reputation immediately just go away or are his damaged bridges 
unreparable. And of course, you got the Billy Walters book that's weeks away. Has anyone seen how damaging that's going to be? I don't think his pariah standing will go away. Certainly not completely. I'm not sure he's going to be able to even say, I told you so. Because his claim is that the tour was sitting on millions of dollars, millions and millions. It might have been millions, but not millions and millions and millions. And this is proving that out. They were hurting. And that's why they're doing this. Uh Um, So they weren't just sitting on a pile of cash that they were hoarding, which is what he claimed. One of his points, though, that is true is that there is a value for the top players. And the idea of guaranteed compensation has merit. For years, Phil Phil didn't necessarily say they should be paid up front, but he always felt that the tour should have a shorter schedule, smaller fields. If you really wanted to make make it a commercial enterprise, it's not about the 120th guy. It's about the 50 guys. And, you know, have 75 or 80 player fields or even 100 players Less events, so they are all playing in the majority of them so fans could see them all at once and then pay them more. In other words, direct all the money to those 20 to 25 events instead of spreading it out around 40 and subsidizing opposite events and even subsidizing developmental tours, which I don't know how you'd get around that. But the bottom line is that had some merit. That's what Live was. It was smaller fields. The, the stars are getting compensated. They know they're going to get paid every week. I've tried to bring this up many times over the past year or so. The charm of golf, making a cut, you know, there's that charm of making a cut or you don't get paid. That's all fine. But in the commercial reality of today, nobody works that way. Certainly not in sports and entertainment. George Clooney doesn't make a movie and then, but hey, we're only going to pay you based on how many tickets we sell. But yet, that's kind of what golfers have been facing. You can make a lot of money, but you got to make it to Saturday first. For a guy like Tiger and Phil, who sold the tickets and helped drive the TV revenue, to stand there on Wednesday in the Pro-Am and then tee off on Thursday and Friday and not be assured of any more than I'd be getting if I were in that tournament, just has never made sense. You know, Steph Curry could go 0 for 15, miss every free throw, and the guy who's the ninth guy off the bench goes out and scores 30. Well, the guy who comes off the bench and scores 30 is still getting paid whatever he gets paid, and Steph Curry's getting paid his $53 million a year. He's paid a lot based on how good he is and his star power. And in golf, I mean, it's great that you get paid based on, on performance overall, but to not get anything or be assured of anything has just, I think, got in their heads, agents' heads, whenever these rival leagues have come up over the past six, eight, ten years, that has been the talking point. That is why these things have had legs. One last one for you, Bob, before I let you go. I think that Jimmy Dunn, you mentioned him, is an interesting power player in this stunner, and it's a name that's unfamiliar to many that are listening to this podcast. He both suffered a huge loss in the 9-11 attacks on our countries. And he was in the middle of brokering this deal on the PGA Tour board. I think he's the president of Seminole. Would you mind explaining who Jimmy Dunn is and his role? He said, by the way, quote, I'm quite certain, and I've had conversations with a lot of very knowledgeable people, 
that the people I'm dealing with had nothing to do with 9-11. If someone can find someone who unequivocally was involved with it, I'll kill them myself. We don't have to wait around. Yeah. Talk about an emotional issue for him. He would have been in the World Trade Center that day, but it was a Tuesday morning, remember? He went out to play golf in a U.S. mid-am qualifier. 66 of his employees died. And he said in that interview, I think about it every day. A year ago, six months ago, he hated Liv. He hated the idea of this. In his mind, you know, maybe there was some Saudi involvement. But as he also said, then there has been speculation or reports, whatever, that the royal family today in Saudi had nothing to do with 9-11. Yes, I believe it was 15 of the hijackers. There's always been speculation and concern that that their government was behind it. I have no idea. I can't even speak to it. But that part of this has hovered over the whole live thing, in in addition to the other negatives about the Saudi regime. So Jimmy Dunn, to change course, is, is interesting. He's a big golf guy. He's a member at Augusta. He's a member at Shinnecock Hills president of Seminole, like one of the most famous courses in the country down, down here in Florida. He's also a member at Cypress Point. And, and he's a good player. He's 65 years old now. A couple of years ago, he was Phil's partner at the Pebble Beach, at AT&T Pebble Beach. He's friends with Rory's dad at Seminole. He knows Rory very well. He moves in these circles, right? Everybody in golf knows him. He was the first one to reach out. A a guy at my place, Michael Rosenberg, talked to him, wrote a column. He shared with him the first text message he sent to Yasser. He sent it via WhatsApp. He started the conversation. The two of them met. Uh, They met in England. They had dinner. They played golf. Dunn's sort of feeling is, is we need to try to understand each other. And it sounds to me like they feel like maybe they had some more common goals more than we all thought. There's been this portrayal that Liv wanted to bust up the PGA Tour. Well, that's no longer in play because the PGA Tour is going to exist. Liv might not exist. But if Liv does exist, it's certainly not going to be going up against the PGA Tour, stealing players and trying to harm it. When the PIF is investing money in the PJ Tour and Yasser's on the board. So there is some harmony there. We just don't know how this is all going to look. And, and frankly, I think it might take a while. Bob, you've been tied at the hip with golf for a long time. You love the game as much as so many of the rest of us. How are you feeling personally? It sounds like maybe you've shifted along the way. Yes. Well, you know, I've tried to remain Switzerland in this whole thing, you know, and I mean, seriously, and I've caught it from both sides, but I don't know how you cover it fairly if you don't try to keep your eyes open and ask questions and look at it. The people who hated live and I caught a lot of crap from people who thought it was wrong for me to even cover it. I'm like, that's ridiculous. I mean, they're here. They've taken some of the best players in the game. I go, I want to understand it. The only way to understand it is to go over there and out there and talk to them and learn about it. It doesn't mean I have to like it. Everybody in, every, in, in, in media is writing stories and covering things that personally they might not be in favor of. That doesn't mean that you can't do the job fairly. And it's the same for the PJ Tour. I mean, I get accused from the live guys 
Oh, you're carrying Jay Monahan's water. I mean, that's that's ridiculous. I've held his feet to the fire, but I've also given him credit where credit is due. I think these elevated, the designated event ideas, forget about the funding part of it because we are not made privy to their books, but the idea of it has been good. These tournaments have been good. So, you know, if Live forced that, that's a good thing. If Live forced these guys to get paid more, which why would that bother us? That was what they were complaining about. Okay, so that's happening. Am I comfortable with the Saudi involvement? Not really. I mean, I, there's so many parts to that. What are they going to do? Are they going to normalize things? You know, the whole sports washing issue is real. And I get where people come from on that. Let's say five years from now, this is all humming along smoothly. Have we just all forgotten about the problems over there? Or maybe they're, maybe they'll get better. Who knows? But uh, yeah, I've tried to remain down the middle. I will say the whole thing shocked me. I didn't think this was going to happen, you know, not anytime soon. I just never, ever dreamed that the tour would sit down and even talk to them, let alone come to an agreement. And now that they have, I think we still have to wait and see what it's all going to mean. Author of the book, Tiger and Phil, Golf's Most Fascinating Rivalry, by the way, recently available in paperback everywhere where books are sold by Bob Herrig, he's always been kind to us on Mitch Unfiltered. Great to hear your voice again, Bob. Let's do it again soon. That would be great. Thank you, Mitch. Zeke's Pizza has a new awesome app, which has made everyone's lives who order pizza better. Zeke's Pizza has new locations even outside of Washington State in Idaho. President Dan Black rejoins us on Mitch Unfiltered. Tell us more about Eagle Idaho, Dan. Yeah, Mitch, Eagle's been fun so far. It's opened with a bang down there. It's been fun having some unfiltered listeners check in from down there. We had had one guy tell us that we were out of Hop Tropic on Twitter, and so I had to buy him a Hop Tropic the other night, which was fun and he checked back in on twitter so that was it's <laughs> the vast reach of mitch unfiltered is you know making its way down there what you don't realize is is that you weren't even out of hop tropic he was just trying to get a free beer. that's what mitch unfiltered listeners are all about there <laughs> hey it doesn't surprise me <laughs> hey, hey, it works <laughs> i count 25 restaurants now two states and i know oregon is next it's amazing how the footprint has grown dan i know i've asked you this before was this the master plan way back when or did some Something changed for you and your partners along the way. Well, it wasn't the master plan when we started. You know, our founders Doug and Tom. They basically wanted to live the ultimate Northwest lifestyle. They like to windsurf and ski big mountain powder, and so they realized they were going to have to own their own business to do it. They're food guys, and you know, at the time there wasn't any really great pizza in Seattle, and so filled the market need and weren't doing much other than wanting to be small business owners. And but it became apparent relatively early on that we kind of embodied the Northwest values and our roots were here and it was pretty clear we were the northwest pizza place pretty early on and so we realized that at the very least could be washington idaho and oregon and it's kind of fun even though that vision's been around for a while to kind of start to have it be realized geographically now and what's the black family ordering now that the weather is gonna change we hope someday and and shine the spotlight on some beer for us yeah you know summer rolls around we tend to get a little bit lighter on the pizza so we end up going 
going doing some veggie stuff like Super Marg and Quentin Florentino are good. I mean, we always order a lot of Wood Butcher and Cherry Bomb and Puget Pound are the favorites, but the veggie stuff kind of comes into play. And then the beer mm-hmm. I'm excited for this summer is we're going to do a re-rack of a popular one we did with Fremont Brewing last summer, uh, Z-Side Frozen IPA, a nice hoppy but light beer that's great for summer. And so not quite sure what date that's going to release, but it'll be a good summer drinker and that's what I'll be keyed on. You got to download the brand new Zeke's Pizza app. It's better than ever. It is simple to get started and to order your pizza, your beer right to your door. We love Zeke's Pizza. They've been an incredible sponsor and partner of Mitch Unfiltered and they're homegrown in the Northwest. Unfiltered. Stroud watching the end zone. Jump ball. So, another all-important, vital Seahawks minicamp is in the books. Tongue firmly in cheek. And our guy Brady Henderson, ESPN Seahawks insider, was on the lookout. And here he is on Mitch Unfiltered. How are you, Brady? Mitch, doing well. Good to talk to you again. Good to have you back. It must be a pain in the ass to have these silly minicamps interrupt good golfing weather, Brady. Well, uh, yeah, the, the weather at the day of recording is not very good. No. But, uh, other, yeah. Otherwise, it's been OK, but that's OK. You know, three days out of the entire offseason, uh, we can give those up. Is Brady's golf game better than the Seahawks or not as good as the Seahawks right now? Well, if you take away the round that I just played, conditions were tough, all that stuff. But yes. the last two, I think we're 79-79. There was oh. an eagle in there oh. uh, down in Las Vegas. So, oh. uh, yeah, the game, my game is in okay shape right now. Did you play with Joe Fan in Las Vegas? We were going to play, and then something came up oh. with him, and he couldn't make it. Okay. Well, rather, it was going to be a round table or a, a, a almost round table reunion. It's though. not round table. It's a no table, no table, no yeah. table or not able, as we like to call it. Rather than me start shouting questions at you about minicamp, why don't we reverse it? And you just tell us the three most interesting things to come out of the VMAC last week or what people are chatting about. Well, I, I would say these are the three things that, you know, from not only the mini camp last week, but the three OTAs that we were able to sure. watch. Now, just yeah. a little a sort of explainer. So the OTAs are the voluntary things. They've got about 10 of those per offseason. They usually let us watch three of them. And then they've got the three-day mandatory mini camp. So basically the six days that we were out there, I think one of the biggest takeaways for me was that this is not only the most talented secondary that they've had in a while, it's definitely the deepest. And Mike Jackson, for example, was a guy that seemed like he was relegated to a backup role when they spent the fifth overall pick on Devin Witherspoon. And there is Mike Jackson having the best camp of anybody. Really? I would say the best. Yeah. Yeah. And and that was, you know, the, he was the <laughs> best player that I saw yeah. out there. Just the best performer from those six practices. Pete Carroll even said, uh, after the last minicamp practice that he was the the best player there. Hold on. Are you inferring that Spoon is not going to win the outside cornerback job or they're going to move him inside, that Michael Jackson's not going to step aside so easily in that competition? Well, I, he's not going to give that job up easily. I, I just cannot see them 
not starting Devin Weatherspoon okay. if he's healthy. Now, I think what you could see, and if Mike Jackson continues on this trajectory and he continues to force his way onto the field, I think what you could see is Devin Witherspoon starting on the left side, Tariq Woolen starting on the right side. Tariq Woolen is still on track to be ready by training camp, so the knee surgeries okay. shouldn't keep him out of anything. So that's in base. And then when they go to nickel, I think you could see them maybe move Devin Witherspoon inside and Mike Jackson comes out to play left cornerback. Now they did something similar like that a few years ago. I think it was Shaquille Griffin's rookie season with him and Jeremy Lane. So we just started seeing Devin Witherspoon in the slot. So that may not be a permanent thing. Uh, I think it's something that they're taking a look at. And I wonder if part of that is thinking maybe it's a way to still get Mike Jackson on the field. If he's going to continue to force his way back. on. What about Kobe? Well, he has been hurt. He's been uh, sidelined by a toe injury. And so we, I did not see a whole lot of him. And again, you know, we didn't see all of the practices. We only saw six of, you know, about 13 or so. But look, I, I just think that Kobe Bryant had a nice rookie season. And he's a player, I think, with a bright future. I don't think he is in that Tariq Woolen territory where he did enough to lock down a starting job next season. I think that nickel job is still very much open for competition. And if Devin Witherspoon looks like he could do it, and you, that's the it's the Mike Jackson Devin Witherspoon pairing, uh, that's an option. I think Julian Love is another option in there. Although you know, with Jamal Adams' status for the opener uncertain, they they may want to keep him there at least until Adams gets back. So for as talented and as deep as that secondary is, there's still a lot of questions to be sorted out. So I asked you for three, and that's one defensive backs. The depth of the defensive backs really leapt out at you or leaped out at you, whatever the right verb is. What's numbers two and three? Yeah, number two, Jackson Smith and Jigba just looks like he is a pro-ready guy. Really? I can't turn on Twitter. I can't look at anything, highlights. I can't look at the news, the local news. Everybody's raving about the first-round draft choice out of Ohio State. Yeah, no, no. Cornerbacks and, and really defensive backs can a lot of times be hard to judge. And then by extension, receivers can be hard to judge for the same reason this time of the year because defensive guys, remember, this is no contact. Uh, so defensive guys aren't always making plays on the ball, you know, right. at the moment of truth. And so you know, sometimes you'll just see those guys back off. And then it, it's really a setup that is conducive to wide receivers and skill guys standing out for that reason. So you, you sort of have to take some of this with a grain of salt, but he never really seems to be confused. I saw one sort of miscommunication where it just looked like he wasn't on the same page with Geno Smith. But aside from that, he just looks like he knows what he's doing. You can, I'm, I'm no route running expert, but you can just tell that there's an efficiency, uh, a crispness with the way that he runs his routes. Is and he fast? Just making plays. He's fast enough. Yeah. And, and I know the 40 time is the reason why he felt well, the 40 time and the hamstring injury are the reason why, you know, the, he was the first receiver taken, but not until number 20 overall. I think if he was, I think he was a five, four, four guy, four, four, eight, four, five, oh, something like that. If he was in the low four fours, then you're talking about a top 10 pick probably. But that said, you know, that's, that's not slow. It's not, it's not a burner, but it's not slow. You know, Cooper cup is a four, I think six guy. And, right. you know, he won the triple crown a couple of years ago. So I think there's a difference between top end 40 times speed. And even if guys don't have that, they can still play fast if they know what they're doing and they're on the same page with their quarterback. And look, I saw him run a wheel route from the slot and he got by Devin Witherspoon the other day for a long touchdown. So even if he's not a burner, I think, there's still plenty of speed there. Before you get to number three, 
does he look like a slot receiver? Or when the three wide receivers, the three main ones are on the field, would you put Lockett as the slot and move Smith and Jigba, if I've said it right, to the outside? I think you're going to see them do both, but you're probably going to see him operate more in the, the slot. slot. Now they, they do like to move. Like you said, they do like to move Tyler Lockett in there just for some, you know, matchup purposes and stuff. So it's not going to be exclusively in the slot, but I think I would guess that the majority of his snaps are going to be, there. by the way, Brady, before you get to number three, I hate to keep interrupting. We'll never get to number three here on Mitch unfiltered. Maybe it'll be a two part interview next week for number three. We can't get off of the wide receivers until I tell you that it appears after all that I heard in Mariners spring training about the left fielder, that D. Eskridge seems to be the Kelnick of the Seahawks minicamps and OTAs. Did I see that DK Metcalf said he looks like a completely different player? We're not even going to recognize who D. Eskridge is anymore. Well, he said something to that like effect. That. Yeah, he, he was raving about him for sure. And he said that he's going to something to the effect. Do we of, believe you know, it? Are we, buying any, are we buying any of it? You know what, Mitch? Truth be told, I was actually thinking of making <laughs> D. Eskridge one of my top three takeaways. I, I just was imagining your head exploding and <laughs> all of the. You were? Yeah. Did I just steal your thunder? Oh, no, no, no he wasn't going to be my third one. I've got okay. a different one for number three, but, but I was going to mention him at some but you, point. He because, impresses you. You think he's. Oh, yeah. You think this is real? This whole D. Eskridge thing. Well, I think it's as real as his health will allow it to be. But he, even he when just, he was healthy, he did very little on the field. Never true, did anything. True. It, yeah, and I think that's why some this is, you know, I think should be encouraging for the Seahawks and Seahawks fans that even at times it's just so hard to evaluate him because he's missed so much time. And I think because of the time he's missed, he's just been behind in terms of learning the playbook and knowing the ins and outs of it. But DK Metcalf had an interesting comment when I asked him about Eskridge and he said, you know, he is so in tune with the playbook right now that Metcalf said Eskridge was, you know, helping him with some of the finer points of, of certain plays and stuff. And so again, this is only as worthwhile as his health will allow it to be. Uh, but if he can stay healthy, they've got something there, I think. Gotcha. Which yeah. means number three is not D Eskridge. It's not D Eskridge, but it is right up your alley. And oh. I, I, look, I know my audience here. Uh, <laughs> on I, Mitch Unfiltered. Am I your audience, or is my audience you, your audience? <laughs> well, in the, in this case, you are my I'm audience. I'm your audience, I, but I am not just pandering here. Because yes, this you is are. An actual, You're going to no, pander here. You're looking for a raise, Brady. You're looking. You know for where raise. I'm going with this, right? <laughs> You're going to say something about screen passes. Yes, I am. <laughs> exactly. This this is the best collection of pass catching running backs that I've seen in Seattle uh, in the what 13 or so years that I've been covering the Seahawks. And look, Ken Walker, the third, I know the numbers weren't there. Then again, the numbers haven't really been there for any Seahawks running back uh, over the last decade plus. But I'm telling you, watching Zach Charbonnet and watching Kenny McIntosh catch passes. And, and look, that's a lot of what OTAs and minicamp is. It's guys running routes on air and, and catching passes and doing the sort of toe trap drill on the sideline. And in the back of the end zone, these guys catch the ball like wide receivers. And, and that's not true of every running back that you see. Some of these guys, like you can tell why they're running backs and not wide receivers just because it doesn't look natural with some players, but with these guys, it really does. And I'm not telling you anything you don't know here, but I went and charted this out uh -huh. uh, the other day. These are uh -huh. the ranks over the years since 2010. I won't read them all, but I'll just give you a, a, a sort of Cliff's Notes version of it, of where the Seahawks have ranked in terms of passes to running backs. So last season, tied for 24th. 
uh, the year before that, 32nd, and then 20th, 27th, 31st, 21st. Hasn't been higher than 14th all the way back in 2010. And when you look at the the yardage, receiving yardage among running backs, that tells this a very similar story. So this has never, as you know, been a big part of their offense for whatever reason. And it's really inexplicable because for all the years that they were really challenged in pass protection, like that's one thing that, and even the years where they just didn't really have a short and intermediate passing game to match the deep passing game that they have. It's a really a head scratcher as to why that part of their offense has been missing. And we'll see if they actually have it this year. It seems like, I don't know if I'm just looking for it, paying more attention to it, but it (laughs) seems like they are throwing the ball more to running backs. I don't know if that's going to translate, but what I do know is that they've got the guys to do it. Let me play devil's advocate with you because it's one thing to have running backs who can catch the ball. It's another thing for the offensive philosophy to be committed to doing that. I remember conversations with the old Hugh Breedlove Millen on the radio show, and I used to complain to him week after week, year after year, they can't throw a screen pass. They can't throw a screen pass. And he would say to me, Mitchie, learning the screen pass and the timing of the screen pass is a big undertaking. That takes a lot of practice time and training camp time. And you have X amount of time to play with. So for every minute that you spend on learning the execution of the timing of a screen pass that you love, Mitch, you can't do something else. And the Seahawks have always been unwilling to devote a good chunk of change time-wise to learning the intricacies of of a true screen game. So I hear you when you say the three guys can catch the ball, but I still have a hard time believing that this offensive coaching staff is going to be committed to throwing the ball to those receivers out of the backfield, in particular, the timing of a screen pass. Yeah, well, that, that is a good point. And when you talk about the timing that it takes, it look, it's not just the quarterback and the running back. It's the, the offensive, offensive linemen who are going out to block. It's like a, it's right. like a stage show. It's, it's a very intricate thing to learn on all behalf. And it takes a lot of time in training camp and practices. Yes. And that is a good point. And and to the point, like when you're doing that, you're not focusing something on else. something right. else that right. you may do really well. Right. So what I would say to that is not all pass to a running back has to be a screen pass. You can dump it off. You can get those guys in the flat. You can split them out wide. You can have them run Texas route. You know what a Texas route is, Mitch? <laughs> it's sort of like a, you know, yeah. Not all passes have to be screen passes. And yeah, maybe okay. it's not. Maybe they don't become this great screen team, yeah. Uh, but I still think that they can get their running backs more involved. So if number three is the running backs, and I know this is totally unfair for me to ask you this because it's so early and we're making a mountain out of a molehill here because it's just OTAs and mini camps. But if I ask Brady Henderson, ESPN.com Seahawks insider, to close your eyes right now and visualize should everybody remain healthy, how they're going to use those running backs. In game one, are you saying all three will be active, one of which or two of which will be on special teams? Who will be the, you'll say Walker's the featured running back in game one and the other guys come in. When does one guy come in, Charbonnet? When does the other guy, McIntosh, come in? How does it work? Close your eyes. Well, we really have to see, this is one thing that you really can't call, at least until you start seeing these guys in pads. Remember, they're not hitting right now. And a big deciding factor in what kind of role Charbonnet has 
and Macintosh for that matter is how good are they, how well are they going to be able to pass protect? Because you, you can't be a third down back if you can't catch, which they can do, but if you can't pass protect either. When the pads come on in training camp, they start doing that, you know, one on one pass protection drill where it's running backs versus linebackers. Uh, then you really get a sense of of who could do what. But I could see all four of those guys being active, assuming that McIntosh is able to give them something on special teams. Okay. You know, DJ Dallas gives them a lot on special teams. He's going to be active. So you know that at the very least, Ken Walker, uh, the third Zach Charbonnet, and DJ Dallas are going to be active on game day. I think it's so up McIntosh, to McIntosh can't beat out Charbonnet. Charbonnet beats out McIntosh so. just because of how much higher he was drafted or just from the looks of it. You see something different. You see some explosiveness in Charbonnet that you don't see in McIntosh. Well, yeah, I mean, it's it's both. It's okay. where they were drafted okay. and also why each of them were drafted there. I mean, Charbonnet looks like a, a third, a three down guy who can run between the tackles, run outside, catch the ball. You know, McIntosh is he's a smaller guy, so I don't know if you're going to want to hand him the ball on first and second down and ask him to run dive plays up the middle. I don't even know if they run dive plays anymore. <laughs> Whatever. I don't, he, he's not, he do doesn't look like football. an early down runner. <laughs> All right. Uh, with uh, Brady Henderson, ESPN.com, Seahawks Insider. Let me catch you on a couple of other things, and then I'll let you run. Not necessarily in any order. Any more clarity on the Adams and Brooks injuries and where they are and where they're expected to be in terms of training camp, opening day, preseason, that kind of stuff? In a word, no. Nothing. Pete Carroll has been, just hasn't had a lot of updates. I mean, I think even a week or two ago, he said that they probably won't have a good idea for when those guys are going to be ready for, you know, a month and a half, two months. And I just continue to think with Brooks, he tore his ACL on January 1st. And everybody knows that's typically a nine month thing. So you do the math. I think it's going to be hard for him to be ready by week one, let alone training camp. Adams maybe, but that's just a... You know, that's an injury that is not a very common injury. And so there's maybe not as much data on what it typically takes, how long it typically takes. I think the other point there, and we talked to Quandre Diggs the other day, and, and he made a good point about, remember, at the end of the 2021 season, he uh, had the ankle leg fracture. Um, now, he was back by week one and back, I think, by training camp. But he said it wasn't until midseason that he really felt like himself. So that's just one more thing to keep in mind with Adams and Brooks, that it's it's not Even just when about back, when yeah. they're able to play. There's going to be a, a few weeks in there where you know it's going to take them time to get their feet wet. Okay. Offensive line, they drafted Olu. They drafted Anthony Bradford, center and guard, rookies. So you've got Olu probably against Evan Brown for center. And then you've got... Bradford against Phil Haynes Haynes, and maybe Evan Brown. Let's say Evan Brown doesn't win the center battle. He could still function in to the guard battle for opening day starting guard. What do you think about that? Way too early, I know. But what do you think about those things? Yeah, I think it's it's very much a wide open competition at center uh, between Oluwatimi and Evan Brown. And, you know, just by virtue, I think of being the more veteran guy or the veteran guy, Evan Brown took most of the first team reps uh, with the number one offensive line, at least from what we saw. Now they did mix Ola with Timmy in there as well, but I, I think that's very much a coin flip right now. I, I just think it's more likely at right guard to still be Phil Haynes. He's the guy that's played for them. Okay. Uh, I thought he played pretty well last year, albeit not in a full-time starting role. And also Anthony Bradford, uh, we didn't see him practice during 
minicamp, and an award for Pete Carroll was that he got in a fender bender and he oh. bonked his head. So he was oh. there. I don't. I don't think it's. It okay. didn't seem like the tone of it didn't seem like it was a, a very serious thing, but maybe more of a precautionary thing. But I think that is very much Phil Haynes' job to lose. Any reason for me to ask you anything about defensive linemen after uh, minicamp or no? Yeah, that's another position where it's really hard to evaluate those guys. You know, once training camp starts and they start hitting and you can right. evaluate the one-on-one pass rush drills, then you can really get a sense for what they have there. Uh, and especially when they start, you know, playing preseason games. But till then, and even until the regular season starts, that's going to be the biggest question mark on their roster. You like the pass rushing depth, the outside linebacker. That's probably one of the deepest position groups on their roster, cornerback being another one. You like what they have pass rush wise. It's just, I think, still going to be a mystery as to whether or not they can stop the run. Obviously, that was their biggest issue on either side of the ball last year. Do we think Wagner has anything left? I do. Yeah. Watch the way he played last year. He looked like he had plenty left. I don't know if it's going to be a a long-term thing at this point when he's 32 years old and playing on a one-year deal. I think he's going to be an upgrade, certainly, from what they had there last year. There it is. Thanks for the update, Brady. Appreciate it very much. Always a pleasure to have you, and we'll uh, check back with you again as as training camp draws closer. How's that? That sounds good. Let's do it. Good to talk to you, Mitch. It's been a while since my friend and Mitch Unfiltered partner, John Waterstrat, joined us, and there's good reason. He's been busy. An exciting major facelift to some of the fireside showrooms. How are you, J-Dub? I'm doing great, Mitch. Thanks for having me back. And yes, it, it has been busy, and we're excited to unveil some new, cool new projects. We have a new sales director that came along, and he's been putting his footprint on the showrooms, and we're excited about what he's doing. We're going to put some new fireplaces you've never seen before. Before, and then we're redoing our whole outdoor kitchen area. Wow. The fantastic flagship Bellevue location was already beautiful, so I can't wait to drop by and see it. So what's the rumor about some big project you're coming up, some enormous fireplace that you guys are ready to install. Yes, our commercial department's doing a fantastic job. And as we've talked about before, we can do almost anything in fireplaces and custom fireplaces are getting bigger and bigger. And we're hoping to uh, unveil the one of the largest fireplaces in North America. It's going to be pretty exciting stuff. How big? Roughly 25 feet. And you're not going to tell us where it is, but we'll be able to see it sometime? And we'll be able to see it and we'll talk about it. Yeah, it'll be exciting. Oh, that's yeah. going to be fun. So now that we've reached, let's call it the off season for fireplace use, it's actually you and I talk about this. One of the better times of the year to start the process of redoing the fireplaces in your home or like you guys did for us, an outdoor unit. Yes. I mean, when the weather gets nice out there, things go a little bit faster. So we're not fighting the weather, whether we have to extract a fireplace, put a new one in. And then again, outside as well. When you're out there, we can get something done pretty quickly for you right now. And so when you're looking at the off season and you have a schedule and and you want to get something done quickly, it's the best time to do it. Yeah. Whether it's fireplaces or garage doors, begin your search at firesidehomesolutions.com. I'll bet you'll end your search there, too. It's sponsors like John and Fireside that make our shows and growing guest lists possible. Fireside Home Solutions and firesidehomesolutions.com. Unfiltered. One of two things is true. Either this statistic is wrong or what Mitch told me he was hitting when we talked last week was wrong. Because there's no way to square how he had had halved the distance. Yes, he had halved the distance. He had halved it. He had halved the distance. 
Episode 242 continues, and notice Daniel Timothy O'Neill, longtime Seattle sports voice, 710 ESPN, the Seattle Times. No P next to the number, no puffery, no poppycock. We are letting you into the big boy room, and I don't know if that means you need to be on your best behavior or the exact opposite, Danny. I, I generally think it means you think I'm fit for coming. Like I th- that there's that there is there is something here that you're you're willing to trot out uh, in front of the the broadest audience that you understand the 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 patrons might have a little more tolerance or leeway for my shenanigans, and that that this is really this is the biggest tent. We're in the biggest tent right now. Should we explain to people why you're on the regular show this week because of your travel schedule? I got to tell you. Normally, when you and Sharon go away, you kind of disappear off of social media and the like. I noticed this time around, I may be wrong about this, unless I don't know when you travel. You went to Vermont. Yes. And I noticed that, man, you were you were a little bit uh, testy on Twitter this week. <laughs> that, w- that was only once we got back. Oh, when I was in Vermont, we okay. actually had no internet coverage. No internet so coverage. So we were, we were there from Sunday through Wednesday and then we came back and we're back in New York City by kind of Wednesday dinner time. And then yes, I was feisty about about several different things. So uh, um but so, it in general, like I definitely unplugged. We were in the Green Mountains. It was yeah, gorgeous. There yeah. were a lot of bugs. Uh our dog Simba last time we were at this cabin, he ate a frog. Oh, frog legs. Yeah. yeah no, no, a frog. Whole thing. Oh. All of a sudden, I looked down, and he's, like, frothing at the mouth, and he's oh, shaking no. his head. And it, it was a good five minutes of foaming dog. Oh, and, scary? Yeah. scary? I, uh, I don't know. I've never heard of anyone dying from eating a frog. I've heard of people getting high from it. So I wondered if I wondered if Simba was going to be tripping. But uh, <laughs> he, he seemed to know worse for wear. And this time, there were, there were not as many frogs. We usually go there in the fall. This time, it was June. It was a great trip. As normally is the case, I have all these things that I want to talk to you about sports, and then you bring something up, and I want to go on a tangent there. You mentioned no Wi-Fi coverage, no internet coverage. I only go to one place every few years. It's a golfing trip, a guy's golfing trip, where there's no connection, and there's really no cell service either. You, You have actually an old landline in your cabin but that's only once every few years how do you do when you disconnect do you go a little do you go a little haywire at the end do you get a little stir crazy at the end or no i love it you do i i absolutely love it and at this cabin there is the cell coverage got a little closer this time yeah like usually once you start out down once you make a turn onto the forest service road you're out of cell coverage now it seems like the cell service is getting in in a little bit into where the national forest is. But yeah, it's so good that one of the days we took a drive, we drove 15 miles to get what is called a maple creamy in Vermont. It's what? soft serve ice cream oh, that's I maple love, flavored. I, anybody who knows Mitch Levy knows I love soft serve ice cream. I love soft I, serve I think ice you, cream. I think you might like a maple creamy. Oh. I guess they've got a very specific, has to be made with the full fat, like regular milk, oh. like the, the cream. It's really good. Is there a hospital nearby that I can go straight to to MIA order cl- <laughs> unclogged right after my yeah. maple creamy? Yeah, okay. right. okay. I'm sure that there or may, maybe the people in Vermont who <laughs> pride themselves on a settler mentality will be able to administer it on the fly. But we drove the 15 miles. I didn't even turn on my phone. 
Didn't That's even beautiful. didn't That's even beautiful. check any messages during the, the drive. I I love being unplugged. All right, Danny, I've got four things for you on my list. I'm going to let you choose the batting order. But unlike the Danny and Mitch patron show, we've got to be I don't know that you and I are able to do this are constructed to be a little bit more short winded on these things so that we can go through it. Here are the four in no necessary order. Mariners mediocrity as we start to inch up towards the trade deadline. No traction. They're like Rocky on his first date with Adrian. Do you remember where Rocky's first date with Adrian was? No. The ice rink. He he got the ice. <laughs> okay. He got the guy to stay open <laughs> later, and he was slipping and sliding, and she was she was ice skating not very well, and he was catching her, and it was very quaint is one word. It was lovely. I, I don't know. I don't remember the word. I hate Adrian. You hate Adrian? I hate Adrian. Like the, my favorite, my favorite you scene hate with Adrian. Adrian. Who hates yes. Adrian? Me. I hate Adrian. You hate Adrian. Yes. Okay. Yes, I do. That's for a in puffer. fact, I would say my favorite scene in Rocky, in all of the Rockies involving Adrian. Don't tell me when she dies. The one where they go to her gravestone. I'm like, yeah, they killed her off. <laughs> Danny. Yeah. You know, people don't like she you. She sucks, me. man. Hold she on. sucks. Danny, people don't like you and me for a lot of reasons. Stop giving them more reasons to hate Danny and Mitch's. <laughs> She's terrible. Uh, you can't win, Rocky. Who yells that? How about, Who yells but how that? about when she came out of the coma after having the first kid and she said, win, just win. Come that on. doesn't make up for the later <laughs> laps in faith. Does not. It does not. I'll give you that. That is. That was a moment where she was a, a, a supportive spouse. But yeah. take it on the whole. I hate her. We got Seahawks mandatory minicamp where there are a few stories. It seems there's a new wide receiver from Ohio State that everybody is raving about. And then I have found the new left fielder story from Exhibition Baseball as it pertains to the Seahawks. We have a new one. He's the diminutive wide receiver who we've all counted out. He's bet DK says he's a new man. We're not even going to recognize D. Eskridge. <laughs> we've got we've got to deal with that now. All uh, exhibition season and getting ready, training camp and getting ready for the opening uh, time. And then we've got NBA Commissioner Adam Silver saying at the NBA Finals that after they do a new TV and digital package. They will likely turn their attention to expansion, and that probably means Seattle and Las Vegas. And then the about face of the PGA Tour, now getting into bed, Danny, with the Saudis and all that blood money. I noticed that you have been talking and tweeting a lot about that, which interests me from this standpoint. I'm wondering how interesting a story this is for the non-golf sports guys. I call you, no, no disrespect, but I would say you're a guy who just has cursory interest in golf, but this has taken the world, the sports world by storm. So those are the four that I have. You name the batting order. Where, where, who's leading off? Where are we leading off? The Mariners. The Mariners. Go. Mediocrity. Mediocrity. Prof profoundly disappointing. What I'd like you to do in your spiel, we used to do this on KJR, is get out the blame pie. I called it the blame pie. You know, the little pie graph that tells... We've got the players to blame. We've got the manager to blame. We've got the general manager to blame. The ownership to blame. I don't know if you found anybody else. Maybe we are to blame the fans because we don't demand more. 
<laughs> what? I don't know. We're to blame? How are we responsible? No, we get 0% well, of the always, blame pie. In, in those blame pies that you see in the newspaper, there's always that other, other? little <laughs> sliver of other. I don't know who other is, but I want you to literally... Throw me percentages of the groups that I just mentioned. Where are we blaming? Because I'm with you. It's profoundly disappointing. 70% on ownership. 70? 70% is on ownership. And I'm going to split between players. Let's do a separate. We're going to do 9.9% players, 9.9% Scott Service, 9.9% General Manager Jerry Depoto. And then other is going to be the general malaise of the Mariner fan or whatever, whatever, whatever role whatever that we've had. We're the, we're, the, we're the fractional slice. Okay. All right. 70% on ownership. 70%. And the reason I, yes. And the reason I say that is because of all of the different moves that you can look at and blame Jerry DePoto for. And there are. A.J. Pollock is not hitting. Colton Wong stinks. They don't have a D.H., I can't look at one of those and think where, okay, that was a big resource bet that he made on that player where he was like, this guy, it's all budget conscious decisions that they made to flesh out their roster after the big financial commitments that they made to Luis Castillo and to Julio Rodriguez and the the acquisition of Teoscar Hernandez. And yeah, it's a bummer that Hernandez has taken a step back and, and that's he and Eugenio Suarez not having the power is is a big reason of why they're here. But but the biggest reason that they're here is because they have an ownership that gives them a very firm cap on get us into the playoffs. And then it becomes, OK, if everything goes right, if everything goes right, this should work. Or if everybody plays up to their baseball, if they don't they don't budget themselves any room for error. Uh-huh. And it, overall, in the time that Jerry Depoto has been here. I have a hard time finding big budget bets that they've made that have been huge mistakes. There's not a Bedard trade. There's not there's not these uh, Sean Figgins type acquisition. It's it's really about I think that he hasn't had the latitude and maybe you can blame him for not pushing for more of it, but I I really just look at it and I was like, yeah man, the guys that have stunk are guys that you kind of knew might stink, and that's why they were available at the prices that you got them for. I wonder why we're having this conversation. Didn't when John Stanton's group bought the team, didn't we think that this type of conversation that we've had for eons in Seattle was going to go away with the new group? Yeah, and I'm not sure if it's out of the pandemic and the financial losses that were suffered there or that they still have a pretty wide ownership group. And so it's not just John... I, I don't I don't know, but yeah, we did. Mm. And that's kind of what we were told mm. when they took the step back, right? Is that hey, we're gonna cut some payroll and we're gonna we're gonna really rebuild in a way that we've never really rebuilt before. And they did that. <laughs> I was led to believe that on the other end of that, when there are when we're in position to get good, we'll spend on that. And they're in position to get good right now, and it, it hasn't it hasn't worked out this season. If you're asking me why they're going to miss the playoffs, it's not because of bad moves that the general manager has made. It's because the general manager didn't have the budget to make the bigger moves that would have paid dividends this season. Well, then I'm forced to ask the next question, which is we are at mid-June. And as I think you and I have talked about in previous podcasts for the patrons, it's a different American League environment 
yes. than it was last year, namely the Texas Rangers. I mean, the Astros are going to be great, and there's a lot of great teams in the East. But when you talk about the Texas Rangers, they not only have been the dominant team in the Mariners division, but they make it extra hard for the Mariners to be a wild card team because either Texas or Houston is going to be one of the wild card teams. Last year, you recall, we knew Houston was going to win the division, and then the Mariners were right there as the second best team in the American League West, fighting with all the other divisions in the American League. It's going to be incredibly difficult. So as we approach the deadline, do we reverse our thinking to say, hey, let's not mortgage the future. Let's not start trading away pieces of the future if all they're going to do is bring back some people that might make them better, but they're going to wind up short anyway, why do it at the deadline? Because you might be able to get a piece that will help you next year. Next year. I, I think you, you, any go, addition, you go searching in the trade deadline for guys that are signed at least for next year. You don't do it trying to boost your chances necessarily for this year. Anybody that you sign has to be a factor for next year. Next no year. rentals. Okay, no rentals. But if there's somebody like Luis Castillo or a bat that's on that caliber where you've got somebody that doesn't want to pay that player going forward and you've got a chance to add him right now and then maybe talk to him about extending his contract in the offseason, they need to be aggressive. They are not in a position where, hey, we've got to hoard our prospects. Where are the bats? Like Even when you look in and just say, okay, as this group is constituted going into next year, where, where are the bats? We know where the arms are, and they're very confident, and I think with good reason about their ability to develop arms. They, they need to add to this but lineup for next year. Here's the problem. The guy that you're talking about, and he's nameless, whether he's a bat or he's a, he's a bat. If he's like Luis Castillo and he's available, then he's probably signed maybe for next year, but is probably one year away like Castillo was from breaking the bank. When they acquired Castillo, they clearly internally knew we're ready to sign Castillo. The ownership that you're blaming 70% on won't be ready to sign that batter uh, after they acquire him and he's he's here for next season. They may not be willing to give him the Luis Castillo contract, whatever the equivalent is for a bat. That's why they've got 70%, Mitch, because I want to shame them. I want to make them feel bad. You think this I is going to happen? If, if I can't appeal to them with reason, I'm going to try to ridicule them into uh -huh. developing fully, fully functional arms, like no little alligator arms that are unable to reach their pockets. Like we want fully extendable arms that go all the way down to the back pocket, reaching in there and fund what they need to do. Because I've heard that too of like, hey, it's hard to get players to come here. Hard to get hitters to come here. And you know what? That's true because they don't want to hit in T-Mobile Park. And you know what usually overcomes that? Dropping a big sack of cash mm, on their head. Mm. I want to blame Chris Larson. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to blame Chris because I, I like John Stanton more than I like Chris Larson. And I've heard, I would agree with I've heard that John, like John Stanton, Stanton is a, a much nicer deal. guy than Chris Larson. It's, I just want to blame Chris Larson. And I know there's probably somebody listening to this right now who knows Chris Larson. Don't tell him. Please don't be a narc. But but Mitch blames Chris Larson for no other reason than Mitch just wants to blame Chris Larson. Okay, I'm ringing the bell. Seahawks mandatory minicamp. Are you following from New York City? What's yes. going on? Every, every, every quarter turn of the screw. What say you? I'm not going to pay any attention to the Jackson Smith and Jigba hype uh -huh. until the regular season. Uh-huh. 
and I'm not going to spend a minute <laughs> speculating on what D. Eskridge might be able to do. But like DK. both of those are on the shelf until regular season starts. I'm not going to entertain any. I hear this every time they have Golden Tate. Golden Tate's rookie year. He was the big story of the offseason. He looks so great. And then the regular season starts when the popcorn pops. He's not doing anything. So until he does it in the regular season, I'm going to consistently point to other much ballyhooed young wide receivers who do nothing when they first get here. Okay, so if Jackson Smith and Jigba and D. Eskridge are on a shelf that we can't reach until the regular season begins, how about preseason can we talk about them if we see some sparks in preseason games or no yes okay. and then i will point out that how it doesn't matter until doesn't matter september rolls around right, and right. then it, yes so, then i'll believe it when it happens so if they're on the shelves where the diminutive mitch levy and danny o'neill can't reach then what stories are on the next shelf down that interest you that you can reach how the secondary is going to look oh how michael jackson mike jackson the long forgotten mm-hmm. Mike Jackson was exceptional during minicamp, and he's not going to move aside for Spoon, Devin Witherspoon, just easy breezy. I'm going to walk away and let him have my job. And no. that might force the Seahawks to move Jackson to the slot or move Witherspoon to the slot in situations. And they also have Kobe, Kobe Bryant, and Tariq Woolen, and just, they just look good at the corner position. Now, I agree with that. One of the most interesting things from minicamp was the stories from well-informed scribes like Brady Henderson pointing out that Witherspoon or Spoon, is that what we're calling him? Spoon. Spoon. Yeah. Uh, Spoon. That Spoon was uh, Spoon was playing in the slot, which I think is very interesting. If Devin Witherspoon is not your starting corner. Week one, we got a and it's not because of injury. Something has gone drastically. <laughs> you know, I don't. Will. I don't care. I don't. Be. I don't care who's out there. And if Mike Jackson's on the field, it better be a nickel situation or somebody better be hurt. Because I don't care how good he is. But if your starting corners aren't Tariq Woolen and with Witherspoon when you're in a base defense, something's gone wrong there. Now that said, they might play a lot more nickel. But then that gets into the interesting question of, okay, what about safety? What about safety with Quandre Diggs and Julian Love, who they signed from the Giants, and then you're going to have Jamal Adams back? There's a lot of uncertainty about exactly how that defense is, I think, going to ultimately be put together and what variations that they'll have. Like, I'm I'm really excited to see that. So I was interested to see that Spoon is playing in the slot because I could see a situation where he is your slot corner and Michael Jackson is there playing on the outside because there is value in having someone an elite slot corner is a really elite position, is a really important position in, in today's NFL in a way that it probably wasn't 10 or 15 years ago. And there's the pardon the interruption bell. We move yonder. Would you like to try a Yiddish phrase that no one knows? <laughs> and it has a it has one of the in it. Would you like to try so, a Yiddish phrase? Yes, I would. And, okay. and and before I do, I would I would point out we live in the Upper West Side right yeah. now. Yeah. And it is. Uh, there is a, a fairly large Jewish community yes. here on the Upper West Side. And one of the lovely neighbors that I've met, her name is Chaya. Chaya. How did I do? Chaya. Because when I've been it's in the elevator seven with on her. a scale from one to ten. Chaya. Like, Chaya. No. Chaya. You have too much in it and not enough Chaya. 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 Yes. Chaya. Yeah. <laughs> well, here's, here's a good one. Here's a good one. Can right. you say the word machala? Machala. Good. So in Mahala. Yiddish, people like to say 
this guy or this company is going machala. What do you think that means based on the way I just used it? Oh, my God. They're going machala. No good. What does that mean? Oh, that they've taken they've taken a, a, an evil turn. They've made a deal with the devil. No, machala means they're going broke. <laughs> they need to make Jewish a deal with people, the devil. Jewish Ma- people Mahala. walk around going, oh, no, our neighbors are going machala. Oh, no, that <laughs> restaurant is going machala. We use machala all the time. OK, Mahala. the the word is and I don't want to do too much of this only because and maybe in our 242 P show puffery next week, we'll do more of this. We have a, a segment with Bob Harrig of ESPN where we've already talked a lot about this. So I'll just get your overall thoughts. It's turning out that it looks like what forced the PGA Tour's hand. A combination of things have left the PGA Tour on the precipice of going machala i didn't mahala. say machala okay mahala. you had the um the pandemic and all the expenses of testing players and running tournaments without fans and all that stuff that really took a toll on the pga tour and everybody else you have you have what the live golf did in terms of forcing the pga tour to up their purses mm-hmm. and really not being able to go to sponsors and saying you need to flip the bill for all of this. So that went into reserves. You have the PGA Tour's lawsuits with Liv that were going to go on yep. for years and years. Attorney's fees. And if you lose those lawsuits, that could have been in the hundreds of millions of dollars. It seems now the more details get released, the more it looks like the PGA Tour and Jay Monahan didn't want to go Mahala. Didn't want to go Mahala. And instead said, we have no choice. Let's do some sort of a deal with them that leaves them a little bit at an arm's distance, but gets rid of all this litigation and makes a lot of this shit go away. Yeah, I think that's exactly accurate. And for a golf fan, the actual result is probably going to be better because you're going to get to see all the best players play again. There is an uncomfortable and unseemly element of how the sport is being funded, but I don't think that's fundamentally different than the infusion of money we've seen in other sports, whether it is ownership of Premier League franchises. Auto racing, yeah. Investment in in auto racing. Look, you're going to see it with the UFC. The UFC returned a huge investment from this private investment fund Well, the UFC is now merged with WWE, which for years has had a a relationship with the ruling regime with that investment fund. I don't think it's good for the overall global future of sports, but I also think that that ship in many ways has sailed. And for someone whose primary concern is the golf, this is probably going to be better for them. And I get how there are going to be a lot of players on the PGA Tour who feel, wait a minute, I was the loyal soldier. And now all of these guys who you told me if I followed them and and took that, I was going to be banned forever. They're all going to get to come back. And I've seen stories now. There was one in the Wall Street Journal saying that maybe they're going to get a stake of equity. Yeah, I don't feel bad for for the players who stayed and feel like, oh, we might we might not get the, the reward. Look, this is how the situation played out. And ultimately, 
I think a lot more of Rory McIlroy, man. Like that's that's what and Tiger Woods. Like I actually have a lot more respect for those guys, and it's not that they're holier than thou or like beyond reproach, certainly, but they stuck to what they thought was right in the face of an overwhelming offer that would have suited their own financial self-interest. And they decided to do what was right. The rest of it, like Jay Moynihan, he's absolutely someone who talked out of both sides of his mouth, but he probably made the decision that he felt was in the best interest of the, of the sport long-term. So he gets to look like a jackass for a little while, which is fine with me. And Bryson DeChambeau in an interview on CNN can talk about the murder of a a dissident journalist as if it's a lesson to grow from and get better and look like a jackass. And that's fine with me. And Gulf Civil War ends in, I, I, I think it would be probably a pretty unsatisfactory way for most people, but golf fans will benefit from it in the long term because they'll get to see all the best golfers play again. Will you make the trip to Seattle in October of, I'm saying 2026 for opening night? Oh, you think it's 2026? Well, where are we? 23? Three Three full seasons? I think they announce it in 2024. And then two years later in 2026, we have opening night at Climate Pledge Arena. For the new Seattle Super, I'm just guessing. I, I don't. What do I know? I don't know. It's just a guess. October 2026. I'm I'm hoping it's 2025. Right. I'm hoping the announcement comes this fall. Well, they have to do the TV and digital deal. We, I don't know which when that's I think gonna... is coming up. Although, yeah. given the Pac-12, who yeah. knows when it's going to happen? It might last forever. Well, by the way, the NBA is going to do a lot better than the Pac-12. <laughs> <laughs> I'm hearing $75 billion package. The NBA, uh, the rich get richer of the NBA. By the way, and just, just, and I didn't wanna really want to go down this road, but I'll, I'll express it anyway. $75 billion, why should that matter to Seattle sports fans? Well, it actually does matter because they're talking about just an immense amount of money. Now, do the math on that. $75 billion divided by 30, which is, the amount of NBA teams, I think, right now to cut in two new equity partners in a $75 billion deal, I think the franchise fee, whoever's paying it, is going up, up, up and away. I won't be surprised if it's $4 billion for Seattle once we get to that point. It's going to be more for Seattle than Vegas. I think they're going to want $4 billion from Seattle ownership. That aside, the commissioner says, yeah. Yeah, probably after the digital TV contract is renegotiated, we're going to focus in on expanding because that's what good businesses do. They expand from time to time, Danny. Yeah, I'm going to be excited for it and and happy to have a team back in Seattle. I wonder how competitive they're going to be able to be, how quickly. Yeah. Um, the, the NBA has generally been pretty... They hamstring it's not hockey. Teams. It's not hockey. It's not. It's not hockey at all. I think it's important for the city. It will always bother me that that team left for a variety of reasons. But I'm certainly still going to be. I, I will be a Sonics fan in a way. Honestly, in a way that I wasn't before because I've always been a Warriors fan going back, and that goes back to me seeing an exhibition game at the Oregon Tech 
gym when the Blazers with 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 Paxson and and Drexler played a minute bowl included Warriors team. And I liked the way the tall guy shot the threes. Oh, (laughs) I'm going to venture a guess that you are one of one. You are. We all like to be unique in our own ways. But I think in this case, you are one of one. I think you are the only person on the planet who Minute Bowl shaped their entire <laughs> NBA fandom for the rest of their lives. I don't think Do he had, I don't think he had that the impact on any other single human being like he did Daniel Timothy O'Neill. How about that? Do you remember what it looked like when he shot a three? Of course, he loved to shoot it, threes. He loved to it shoot was, It was like I've never seen anything like he it. He was shooting since. down and, at the basket for God. <laughs> So wild. Um, It was. And I just I thought it was the most entertaining thing I'd ever seen. And look for the overall breadth of my fandom like that cursed me because to root for the Warriors was to root for a woebegone awful franchise for 20 years to to root for a team where when Latrell Sprewell choked PJ Carlissimo like I was there like fire PJ do not trade Spree (laughs) do not trade it like anybody who's been around PJ can understand why Latrell (laughs) wanted to choke him Uh, all right Danny you were really good we were really good for this episode 242 so much so that I'm putting you back in the closet for the patrons this week that's it you get one shot to go into the big boy room you used it and that's it no more Back to the peace Back show. to long relief. Back that to was long- a spot starter. Yes. Jeff, remember when <laughs> Jeff Nelson went from setup man to closer by way yes. of injury? And he was like yes. the world's greatest setup man, but he couldn't close worth shit. And he used to, close we, when we teased him, he literally got mad at me. Like, I don't know that he got to the point where he's going to physically do something, but he got so pissed that I would joke around with him about how he couldn't close, but he was a great setup man. But we need to keep him in that role. We need to keep you, Nelly, in that role because you can't really close. That's what I'm saying to you here. <laughs> you know what? Because I remember him getting testy about that. Oh, he got mad, mad, mad about that. As and his yellow Hummer. Happened, he also had a yellow as, Hummer. Go ahead. As, as soon as that happened, as soon as it all made sense to me why he was a high school basketball referee. Cause I had always wondered, I had always wondered like what motivation, like why would anyone, and it's not a disrespect to the, the profession of officiating, which we, we made some, some fun about that a couple of, of, of weeks ago, which I kind of felt bad about. Cause I have a great deal of respect. It's a really hard job. It's a really important job. It's a really thankless job. And when you're in youth sports, you get a ton of abuse that's unnecessary. But with Jeff Nelson, I always wondered, I was like, a guy that's that high level of an elite athlete, most of them have kind of an antagonism toward officials that made it surprising to me that he would choose to be a high school basketball referee. And when he got mad at you about that, like was kind of unable to laugh at himself which is really kind of what it was of being able to say like, yeah, I don't know what happened. It, it was like serious. I was like, oh, it makes perfect sense to me now. Like that's that's the kind of mentality you, that would that would have someone be a, a high school official. That's that sort of certainty in themselves. Ladies and gentlemen, Daniel Timothy O'Neill. Catch him on the dang apostrophe. Become a subscriber. Also, you can hear him. Once a week with us for the patrons. Not last week because he was in Vermont, but he's on the main show this week. Thank you, Danny. Thanks, Mitch. 
My man, Jay Flo, Jordan Flowers. He runs the Woodenville office of Cross Country Mortgage. He's a jet setter, too. Legoland with the family. A Cavaliers game in Cleveland with Cross Country Mortgage. I hope you don't forget your mediocre friends here in Seattle, Jordan. Never, never. <laughs> All the jet setting, it's just puffery, Mitch. Just puffery. Oh, very good, Jordan. <laughs> very good. Danny O'Neill will be very impressed. Good time to be a buyer in the Pacific Northwest. True or false? Absolutely true. Great time to be a buyer right now. Uh, buyers are not having to get into a lot of multiple offer situations and escalate like they were a year ago. Huh? They're coming to reasonable agreements with sellers, not having to waive all their conditions just to get considered. And they're able to get a lot of credits to help pay for closing costs or even take advantage of helping buy that rate down. And last week, I understand you locked in a buyer with an interest rate, at least at the outset in the threes. People listening to this are going to say that's not humanly possible. True or false, Jordan Flowers, and how? True. So as referenced in the past, we are taking advantage of these temporary buy downs in the market. What we're doing is taking that seller credit and getting enough to offer the ability to temporarily buy down an interest rate from, say, the start rates are in the mid sixes, upper sixes, and get them starting at 3% the first year and elevates to four and then five and then the note rate. But within those first year or two with rates will come down, they then can refinance into that long-term secured fixed rate. All right. So what am I paying attention to if I'm a buyer or seller? What numbers as they come out over the next weeks and months? Yeah. Uh, two key markers to be watching is the CPI numbers coming out because the last year's CPI number will fall off, which it was a monster in March last year. If we get a lower reading this year, that will then be indicating inflation is coming down, which will be great for long-term mortgage-backed securities. And then keep an eye on the 10-year treasury. If we can get that 10-year treasury number down to about 3.2, 3.25, it's going to be an excellent time for anybody that has purchased in the last year to look to refinance and lower that interest rate as well. And if you're looking to refinance, if you're looking to lower that interest rate as well as he says, you're going to call first Jordan Flowers and his team at Cross Country Mortgage. Phone number? 425-890-2957. Jordan Flowers, the Woodenville Office of Cross Country Mortgage. Great, great partner of Mitch Unfiltered. Unfiltered. Episode 242, Hot Shot Scott. The other stuff segment, I'll start. Congratulations in order to Novak Djokovic. Ah. French Open number three. He's the champ. That means three French Opens do the math. Ten Australian Opens. That's 13. <laughs> Seven Wimbledons. That's 20. Three U.S. Opens. That's 23. 23 Grand Slam titles. How many men have done that? Mm, I'm going to say none. How about one? Him. One. Yeah, <laughs> yeah there you go. Besides him. Yeah. Yeah. It's impressive. It's crazy. Age 36. So. He won his 23rd Grand Slam event on the red clay of Roland Garros. Now, there needs to be a, a little tiny asterisk. Okay. Rafael Nadal, who's won like 40 of those things, those French Opens. Yeah. Nobody. Be, he didn't play. Another uh, French Open where he doesn't play because of injury paved the way for uh, Novak it, Djokovic. Is it the Houston Rockets winning a world championship without Michael Jordan in the league? 
A little bit. Or no? A, a little, little bit, bit okay. except for the fact that this guy's won 23 and the I don't think the Houston Rockets had won uh, 23. <laughs> you don't think so, huh? No. And oh, by the okay. way, footnote to this, which is not really a footnote. He's now won the Australian Open this year and the French Open this year, which, you know, Hotshot, are the first two Grand Slams of the year. Sure. Yeah. He's yeah. halfway to the season to sweeping the last time that happened. 1969. Your Whoa. uncle. Rod Laver, Uncle Rod. Oh, yeah, sure. The last guy to win all four in the same calendar year, and he's got a legitimate shot to do it. Of all the tennis players since 19... There's been one who have done that. That's... A, that's Won all four in the same year, yes. Wow, you think there would have been and at least Since 1969. First guy since 1969. All right, the mega viral YouTuber who you love, known as Mr. Beast, recently posted a new video where he's delving into the different levels of luxury yacht life. Well, you know your buddy Tom Brady... Living that yacht life. So Tom Brady, who was in Novak Djokovic's box at the French oh, really? Open during the final. Yeah. Yes, go ahead. There you go. So he was on Tom's boat and Mr. B said, I'd like you to try something, Tom. So he flew his drone, you know, a little drone, like, I don't know, 50 yards out there. He said, I'm going to give you one shot to knock the drone down with this football. Let's see if you can hit my drone and knock it in the water. It was a pretty far shot. Of course, Tom picks up the ball, chucks it. Hits the stupid little drone, knocks it right in the water. First try. It's really impressive. You can really? see the video for yourself. Yeah, you're like, Jesus, this guy could probably still play. I mean, it was, I don't know, it was it was not 100 yards away, but it's pretty far away. And then he said, hey, there's my buddy in a jet ski. See if you can hit him in the chest. Tom picks up a ball, wings it, hits the guy right in the chest. Good Lord, I guess he can still play. So anyway, it's a cool video if you want to go see it. It's just Sounds like Tom Brady accuracy. being Tom Brady. Yeah, it's pretty funny. While you're talking about YouTuber people, by the way, Phoenix Mercury Center, Brittany Griner and her yep. teammates were confronted by a Blaze Media YouTube personality in the Dallas-Fort Worth International Airport on Saturday morning before flying to Indiana after the team played twice in Arlington, Texas this week. I have decided just symbolically not to mention the guy's name. I don't know if okay. all YouTubers are bad guys and bad women, but he was harassing Brittany Griner in the airport for the hmm. sake of posting it on his YouTube. He's got a lot of listeners and fans. The WNBA says, as we gather additional information about today's incident at the Dallas airport, it has come to our attention that this was an orchestrated event by a social media figure and provocateur. His actions were inappropriate and unfortunate, the league said in its statement. So a very yeah. ugly scene in the airport created by a YouTuber. The, the kids call that clout chasing, Mitch, just to do what anything stupid, stupid, just to get views on your stupid channel. Okay. Like I recently saw one where have you ever, ever been to a, a pizza place where they have like 500 boxes stacked up, empty boxes stacked up? You ever no, seen that? No, I haven't seen that. Well, oftentimes at pizza places, oh, yeah, yeah. they have them stacked they'll up. They'll pre-fold them. Yes, yeah. to, get, to get ready for delivery. Yes, That's I, right. Yes, That's yes, right, because yes, yes. you want to go fast. So they right. do it ahead of time. Right. This guy comes in. He yanks on a huge stack that hit the ground, and and the owner of the pizza place just came flying out, shoved the guy out the door. They kind of got in a fight. But, yeah, these guys go around. or the, Remember the whole thing where people are licking food in grocery stores and putting it back and uh. just to get likes and views? And, yeah, that's clout chasing is the most clout annoying chasing. thing ever. Clout chasing. And why do Ugh. we... Why do we call it clout chasing? Well, because you're looking for clout. You're looking to make a name for yourself. You want to get famous by 
Badgering Brittany Griner, I guess, is the best way to do yeah, it. Yeah, that's All right. This might be one of the most important things I'll ever say on this podcast. Yeah. One of the most notable happenings at Apple's event for developers is likely the iPhone maker's tweak that will keep its autocorrect feature from annoyingly correcting one of the most oh. common expletives to oh. ducking. Yeah. They're going to let you do it. I think they're going to tweak it and they're going to let you say F-U-C-K-I-N-G. Finally, always ducking and it drives me absolute nuts. <laughs> it's about time. Let me say the word that I love and that I mean. It's way better than ducking. Okay, that's it. So you have to then go back and retype the right word. Otherwise, right. ducking comes out when you. Uh, yeah. And sometimes <laughs> right, when you type the right word, it changes it to ducking. Right. That's what this is. Yeah. Oh, I thought you were talking it. about the verbal thing. Like you say, no, no, when you, no, say, when you yeah. type it, yeah, oh, yeah. It, it won't let you say it. It okay. won't even let you type it unless you like, yeah, it's annoying. Do you so remember, there you go. do you remember uh, Seahawks offensive tackle Russell Okung? Sure. The, the uh, Bitcoin contract fella, the Bitcoin, the guy who represented himself, the <laughs> guy who was drafted yeah. on the same first round as Earl Thomas, the left yeah. tackle Russell Okung. He made news and he gave me and you an idea this week. Okay. He has lost a hundred pounds. Since wow. he retired from the NFL, would you like to know which diet he was on? Jenny Craig, 30 for 30 or whatever it's called, 30 on 30. <laughs> That's not 30 for 30. That would be the ESPN series. 30 and 30. Simmons. I don't know. There's <laughs> yeah. one that we all that we yeah, all the hear one about. that Furness is always plugging, yeah, yeah, whatever yeah, that yeah, cockamamie yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Would you like to know um, which one he was on? I would actually. He was on the eat nothing diet for 40 straight days. <laughs> Turns out that'll work. God, not healthy, but okay. Is that really what he did? Fasted for 40 days, nothing but water. How is he alive? 40 days, nothing but water. Lost 100 pounds. He tweeted, the experience was so rich and rewarding that I'm going to do it again. So... (laughs) If he's lost 100 pounds, and you should see him. I saw the the pic. He's paper thin. Yeah. He, he literally, Russell Okung literally turns sideways uh-huh. and you can't see him. Oh, he disappears. Yeah, I got you. Why are we doing it again? Well, well, <laughs> well, because he knows he's going to put it back on. Oh, because he's, he's going to snap and he's going to have to eat food at some point <laughs> and he's going to put it all back on. It's so not healthy to do it that way, to starve yourself. I don't think there's a doctor alive that would say that's the best way. To How do it, long so. would you last water only? Uh, I'm not Jewish, so I've never had to do it. Um... I don't know. I could probably go a couple days at best. Couple days? Yeah, I think I could do a couple days. Maybe like, maybe not forty-eight hours. Maybe like thirty-six hours. I was wondering if I could do a weekend. And how much would you lose if you, let's say, you had dinner on Friday night and you didn't gorge yourself? You had Friday night dinner, and then you didn't eat until Monday morning breakfast. Just Hmm. from Friday night, all you did was drink a load of water. Piss your brains out. And then on Monday morning, you had eggs and toast for breakfast. First of all, how much would you lose? You'd lose some, right? You probably would lose 10 pounds. And then the second question is, would you put it all back as soon as you started eating? Not a lot, but just regular meals on Monday. If you had just a nice breakfast, a nice lunch, and a nice dinner on Monday, would on Monday night, whatever you lost from Friday to Monday, already be back on? Those are my I don't questions. Think it, would all, it, it wouldn't all be back on. I could do it if I could be just like left alone in my house because that means I couldn't have coffee, couldn't have a beer at night. No. You know, I might be kind of an asshole. So if I could just be <laughs> left alone 
I think I could get through it. Like if I had a, a, a movie role that I had to do this for or something, I'd say, I'm going to a hotel. I'd, I'd leave me alone. I'm going to be a jerk for three days, but I could do it. I think if I had to, it would suck. It would definitely suck, but I, I think I could do it. Okay. The Seattle Times has done a piece on the financial difficulties of the University of Washington Athletic Department. Ah, John, did you see this? God. They're having problems now. The University of Washington Athletic Department <sighs> lost $5.8 million in 2023, fiscal year 2023. The University of Washington Athletic Department lost $7.8 million, or is going to lose, sorry, going to lose $7.8 million in 2024. That's the expectations. The deficits stem somewhat from continued severance payments following the firing of former UW coach Jimmy Lake, totaling five oh, no. million in twenty-three and a projected he's still gonna get four million in twenty-four from the University of Washington. UW's losses in both twenty-three and twenty-four will be covered with the department's dwindling reserves, which are estimated now to total nine point one million next July. For perspective, this is the Seattle Times talking. They were thirty-four and a half million. The reserves were before the pandemic in twenty nineteen. So thirty-four million is down to nine million in reserves. And there's one human being on the face of the earth who, if listening to this, is applauding it. The fact that the University of Washington. You know what his name is? No, Mike Hopkins. <laughs> No one's getting bought out of their contract anytime soon, are they? Mike Hopkins can roam the sidelines for That's at least right. one more year. We're getting something because, out of him. No way they're giving him $9 million no. to leave. No way. By the way, of all the people on earth who are going to bring down the University of Washington Athletic Pro, it's going to be Jimmy Lake. That's the guy that finally <laughs> takes down UW. I mean, God. Well, That's Jimmy, amazing. Jimmy Lake or the person who hired him. Yeah, right, right. Or the know, but then you look, and I think the person who hired him also hired Mike Hopkins. Yeah, but that also is a person who is highly thought of and has been in the mix or in the discussion for the USC athletic director job. So yeah. she's still very highly thought of, and she also did bring in Kalen DeBoer. So and she brought in, she helped bring in Chris Peterson. So she's done some good things, and she's done some. Not so good things. I, I know the math doesn't work this way. I don't know how it all works. But when you look at the University of Washington's endowment, it's $4.8 billion in 21. Like I know that's it, it doesn't necessarily correlate to the athletic. But $4.8 billion endowment seems like a lot of money. And now they're complaining that the athletic department's going to lose money. The I, athletic I don't know how any of that money works. Well, none of us really do. But I don't think that they're connected at all. At all. Okay. All right, a broken guitar of, of Kurt Cobain's, a Fender Stratocaster. It's covered in scratches, chipped wood. The name of Kurt Cobain is and his former band Nirvana are misspelled. The guitar itself, which was once smashed and put back together, is no longer playable. But on Saturday, the broken guitar was sold at auction for $596,000. Jeez. For a broken effing guitar, nearly 10 times more than the opening price. So he was known to have, he destroyed multiple Fender Stratocasters during his career. And this particular one was wrecked while he and his band were working on Nevermind, their landmark album in the 90s. Anyway, 596,000. Now, see, the University of Washington Athletic Department should start asking people for some broken guitars that they can auction off. This guy made $600,000 in one swoop. Are you talking about musicians who intentionally 
smash their guitars? Or are Correct. you talking That's about right. musicians who accidentally break their guitars? If it's the former, why would a musician do that? I don't get it. Ask the who who did it 50 <laughs> years ago. I don't know. Why does anyone do it? I don't know. It, I don't know. It's fun. It's 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 rock and roll. Fun. It's punk rock. It's badass. It's expensive. Smash a guitar. Yeah, I mean, yeah, there's there's some of that. But the guitar was eventually repaired and gifted to his friend, Mark Lanigan. He was the lead singer of the Screaming Trees who died about a year ago. So it looks like Mark's family's trying to get rid of some of the stuff and got 600 grand for this guitar. Unbelievable. And you know Broken what I would say Kurt to Kurt Cobain if Kurt Cobain were in front of me <laughs> smashing a yeah. guitar? You know what I would say? My first words to him would be. What's that? You know, those guitars, they don't grow on trees, you know. <laughs> That's right. They sure don't. I know it does kind of bum me out when I see him smash it. Like Paul Stanley does it for Kiss. I'm like, God, I would love to have that guitar. You really have to smash it in front of me. It feels very wasteful. Sorry to see that my favorite ESPN Sports Center personality hotshot is leaving the network after 23 years. Do you watch Sports Center at all? Occasionally, it's usually uh, the bald dude, um, Scott Van Pelt. Okay, you watch Scott Van Pelt. I'm not a huge. I'm not a huge okay. Scott Van Pelt fan. I am a huge Neil. Does the name Neil Everett mean anything to you? Oh, of course. Yeah. The L.A. guy. He's in L.A. Yeah, with yeah. Stan Verrett. He's kind of tongue in cheek. He's got all these little catchphrases. I think he's a really, really good Sports Center anchor. And after 23 years, he is leaving ESPN. They're going through a round of cuts. And so oh. we've seen the last of Neil Everett and Stan Verrett on the Los Angeles edition of SportsCenter. I really like him. Neil Everett's got the glasses, right? Correct. Picture him with the gla- exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's exactly. good. He seems kind of dry. and Very dry. Like he doesn't take it too serious. Very you know? funny. Yes. Yeah, yeah. You got That's the right guy. And he might be going on his own accord. I don't know the details of his departure. I just yeah. know that I'm sad to not be able to watch him in the Los Angeles Sports Center any longer because I really liked him. And I'd like for you to weigh in on the Marlon Wayans versus United Airlines dispute. Are you familiar? I saw it and I didn't grab it. I didn't know if you knew who Marlon Wayans was, so I decided to pass on that story. Well, you would be right. I have no idea who Marlon Wayans is. I just know <laughs> I he's have one. I time to sit and explain the whole thing to you about who he is. I think he's that, one so, of yeah. the Kardashians, but I'm not sure. Yes, he is. He's Marlon Wayans Correct. and the United Airlines. You tell me who you favor. Who are you siding with? Marlon Wayans and United Airlines at odds over an incident at Denver International Airport on Friday. In a series of Instagram posts, Hotshot, Wayans claims a gate agent told him he had one too many bags to board his flight, and it escalated to him getting a citation. Quote, this is Wayans. I complied. I consolidated them. The guy was like, oh, now you have to check that bag. Most agents are always love, but every now and then you come across bad people in caps. This was one of them. That's his version. United Airlines responded in a statement to the USA Today. Quote, a customer who had been told he would have to gate check his bag instead pushed past a United employee at the jet bridge and attempted to board the aircraft on his own. The spokesperson added that the customer did not fly United to his destination following the incident, at which time Wayans Instagrammed, you all owe me money for my shows I missed. You all owe me for my troubles. You all owe my fans a damn apology. This was the highest level of disrespect and should have been avoided. Who do you believe or do you believe both the United Airlines or Marlon Wayans? 
I don't believe that Marlon Wayans sells tickets for comedy shows. First of all, <laughs> that that's the part I can't believe that he actually has he's not funny booked, has gigs booked. But okay. no, no, I, I'm, I'm sure he's funny. But I just oh, that's a tough one. I just feel like at airports, there's just no room at all to be grumpy or to mess around or to push your way past anybody or to be argumentative at all. So I unfortunately I have to side with the airlines. On Why this. are you unfortunately so- siding with the airlines? Why is that unfortunate? Well, because, you know, maybe that person was a real a-hole to Marlon Wayans. Maybe he was, or, or she, I don't know if it was yeah. a man or woman, but yeah. yeah, maybe the employee was a real asshole, which we've all come across those types of people. And so, yeah, maybe he did get frustrated, but no matter what, you just can't force your way past anyone and head towards an airplane after 9-11. Nope, not happening. Can't do it. So, so you're you on the side of you. United Airlines on this dispute. As much as I don't want to be, as much as I've been irritated at airports and wanted to force my way onto planes and tell people to F off and not have to walk all the way back to check my bag and everything, I, I get it. But okay. yeah, you got to side with the airlines all on right. this one. I've got one RIP. Do you have any RIPs or anything else are, that you want to get in? Are we really? I was waiting for you to bring up Zion Williamson. Is that not happening? Did I not? Oh, I sent it to you via text. I almost thought that we did that on the show last week. We didn't? I uh, know. Go ahead. Do you have I don't have it in front of me. Well, I know I sent it to you. Not a not a good spot he was in. Very uncomfortable spot he was in, right? Yes. I I don't have it in front of me cuz I I thought for sure you would have it. I'm I, sorry I have a funny that I didn't follow up to oh, it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But I can't do it based on memory. So I I it's this is okay, not gonna, I think I got gonna, it. Okay, I you, I got you go. So Zion Williamson has a girlfriend. She's expecting he he posted on Instagram a picture of he and his girlfriend or fiance whatever she is saying, hey, we're expecting, you know, it's a big moment. Everyone's happy for him. Well, in one of the comments, an adult film star <laughs> named, I don't have her name in front of me. She called him out and basically said, look, buddy, you were with me a week ago. Oh. Um, by the way, you better hope I'm not pregnant because oh. I'm late. Oh, yeah, not good. And she got oh. kind of graphic about some of the sex acts they were doing. Oh, yeah. Spitting you, in I people's you... mouths. Oh. And yeah, 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 yeah. Not exactly the way he probably wanted to spend his announcement of his fiance being pregnant but so she calls him out and uh he has yet to respond how about the fiance has she responded just yet yeah i don't know that she has i haven't seen anything from her but i found this interesting that after she called zion out her popularity exploded since she railed against the nba player as searches for her on pornhub have spiked like crazy You know, when a I rep s- says, go, sorry, go ahead. When I sent you that, I did not know she was an adult film star. I just thought oh. that she was some random other woman in a lot of drama with Zion Williamson. I didn't know she was a film star. I didn't either until I, I read this. But a rep says that on June 7th, the day she made the allegations against Zion, searches for Mills increased 2,293% when compared to her daily average. She's now edging towards a million total searches already this month and now ranks inside the top 200 porn stars on the site. Hold yeah. on. Are you, <laughs> no, I haven't. Are you one of those searchers? Well, I didn't know that she was research one either until I read show. this. Honey, I know, it's, research it's for the show. For the show. <laughs> My hands are tight. I got to do it. I don't know what to tell you. Um, an interesting note, according to the Pornhub rep, it's actually been more women than men who have searched oh, for Oh, that's interesting. Which I found interesting, yeah. That but, is but interesting. Looking, what do you have to look like to get someone like Zion? I want to go see for myself. And there she is in all her glory. But no, I haven't. But like you said, for the show, I think I probably should do it so we can discuss it. The sneakers exploded, right? <laughs> they sure did. God, it's going to be sad if he doesn't ever like figure it out and become like this perennial all-star. He's, He's always like hurt. such a can't miss to me. He's I always hurt. It. That frame... 
Yeah. He's got, yeah. Those legs, those knees, those ankles. He's just built different. Yep. You and him are kind of built similarly. Not built for basketball. <laughs> I mean, honestly, like that's not a sport that like he and I should be playing. Correct. All right. I got one RIP and then you can do headlines unless you got RIPs. Oh, yeah. I got a few. You do. I got Roger yeah. Craig, former big oh. league pitcher. And manager, what? What? Somebody sent me that right after we recorded a week ago. Yeah. A friend of mine, Jason, said, hey, are you guys going to talk about Roger Craig? He's a big San Francisco honk. Yeah. And I said, and I was in my car like, well, we just finished and I'm driving home. Well, as you know, and most sports fans know, there are actually two Bay Area Roger Craig sports legends. We're not talking about the running back of the 49ers who deprived number 13 of his one and only (laughs) Super Bowl ring we're talking <laughs> about the former major league pitcher and manager roger craig died at 93 he managed the giants from 1985 to 92 he won world series three times as a player and took the nl pennant as a manager again roger craig passed away at the age of 93 was he the the manager with with uh will clark and kevin mitchell yes. and those teams yes yeah he had yes some good he teams. was yes he was they never won yeah. at all Probably the A's got in their way, if I had to guess. In fact, I think Roger Craig, I I could be completely wrong about this, might have been the manager during the earthquake of the World Series. Yep. What year was the earthquake? Yeah, I think Uh, that. 89, I think. 89, was that the the, the Northridge? I'm pretty sure that Roger Craig might have been the manager of the uh, Giants at the time. Go ahead. What do you got? The legendary Christian philanthropist and radio broadcaster who once ran for president, Pat Robertson, passed away. Is that right? Didn't know yeah, that. You could probably picture him, right? He sure. The, uh, sure. The CBN, which was home to the immensely popular 700 Club, which as a seven-year-old, I couldn't, I was up early. I couldn't wait for that to end so the stupid cartoons could come on. And I had <laughs> always watching the last 10 minutes of the 700 Club, wanting it to end. Let's go. It's cartoon time here. Anyway, he was, um, he was divisive, we'll say. But uh, rest in peace to Pat Robertson at 93 years old. This one hit me hard. Wrestling legend, the Iron Sheik. Yeah, I former did see that. I should have put that yeah. on my list. Yes, yeah. Iran, number one, USA. Poof. And he would spit <laughs> on the mic and place would just go crazy. He just, he had so much heat because they created that character during the, uh, the Iran uh, hostage situation. Right. Oh, God, that guy had so much heat in the buildings. One of the great heels who ever lived. He went by Kaz on his personal life. His name was Hussein Kazro Ali Vaziri. He, he was the world heavyweight champion. And then he was beaten by a guy named Hulk Hogan. Oh. And that's what kicked off Hulkamania right there. there you go. So he was a good enough man to Got give it. up the title to Hulk. Got it. I remember him. And- you know, you're a wrestling phenom. If Mitch remembers you, and I actually do remember that character. With the mustache. The Iron and- Sheik. And he wore a, a, a thing over his head, right? Or no, am I wrong yep. about that? Yep. Yeah. No, yeah. for sure. Yeah. Yeah. He was a true badass. He was an, a, an Olympic wrestling. I think he was a gold medalist in the Olympics for wrestling. And uh. then he worked security for the head of Iran. I mean, he's just like this true, absolute real life badass. He was inducted into the Hall of Fame in 2005, survived by his wife of 47 years and his kids. And then Ted Kaczynski passed away. The Unabomber. Yeah. The The notorious domestic terrorist Ted Kaczynski. Uh, The FBI says he was found dead Saturday morning in his cell. So far, officials aren't saying anything about the cause of death. He was 81 years old. Yeah, I went back and read. I'm like, I don't know. What did did he really do again? You just kind of forget, right? Well, he set 16 explosions that killed three people and injured 23 others between 78 and 95. So kind of a bad dude, I guess we would all say. 81 years old. Do we say rest in peace for a guy like that? I, I... Ted Kaczynski, dead at 81. 
That's what I'll say. And then that's it for my RIPs. You get the choice. Jim Brown or Ted Kaczynski for lunch at Duke's. You can throw Pat Robertson in the mix, too. <laughs> oh, God. I'll uh, take, I know who I'll take. I'm taking Ted. You know who I'm taking? Who? Phil Mickelson. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no kidding, man. Yeah, Ted Kaczynski was like weirdly a Harvard grad and was like had this huge brain on him and was just angry. And anyway, there you go. You want some headlines? Sure. An Oklahoma man is facing an indecent exposure charge after allegedly using airdrop to send explicit photos of himself to employees at a real estate firm where he was applying for an apartment. After receiving the pictures, employees knew right away that something was up. A woman who went missing in the Australian wilderness after making a wrong turn survived by herself for five days on wine and candy. I'll take things my wife dreams about for a thousand, Alex. An Ohio woman has been charged with desecration after she allegedly defecated on a church altar. Parishioners have been warned going forward. Take a closer look next time they drop their hand in the collection basket. And finally, a British mom who's been married for eight years joined an 18-person orgy for the first time as the married couple explored their bi-curiousness. And she said it changed their lifestyle. You know, I once tried an orgy, as you know, but it was me, my iPad, laptop, and iPhone while my TV watched. <laughs> By the way, I have to admit, that's an old Norm MacDonald joke, but I thought it fit perfectly, so I stole it from him. <laughs> That's the closest I've been to one of those. <laughs> Me, my iPad, laptop, and iPhone while my TV watched. You stole a Norm McDonald. Yeah, I had to. It was hilarious. Uh, I love it. Okay, that's it. Episode 242. We tried, folks. We really tried. I know I said last week that this one would be better than last time. How'd we do? Next time will be better than this time. Because <laughs> I won't be there, thank God. <laughs>